hello, Tom. Hello, Heron. So, I have a list of topics which I prepared sometime this morning. Do you have any topics you want to Oh, just in? what's on my mind at the moment. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've, I've been watching these uh, various animal cams, you know, the, the eagles and the Certainly. falcons. And, and in particular, this uh, golden retriever breeder just uh, had uh, 11 puppies. Uh-huh. And I have two big 27-inch monitors. So most of the time, or often anyway, I just have one of the monitors full screen just watching. I've been living with puppies for two weeks, essentially. And and it's just on all the time. It's just there. And the drama is really – I mean, it's it's very occasional, but it does – I mean, it really is – much better than television. <laughs> it's, it's just it's just interesting watching these little uh, boblings develop, and you know, from, from being really totally hopeless. About the only thing they could do is find a tit and suck it, mm-hmm. and uh, which is actually pretty good when you start to think about it. <laughs> you know that they can do that. You know, but slowly they they've got control of their bodies. You know, and now they're sort of walking sort of pretty good a little bit like drunks and um you know but every day you can see these little signs of them you know it's, and it's the same as us i mean really the, the dna difference between a chimp and a human is is minor but it's really pretty minor even for dogs you know mm. we're we're pretty similar in so many ways you know? certainly and so just just watching these guys develop and seeing you know trying to f- i mean because right now they don't even really know i mean they can see and they can walk but they don't really recognize anything because they're just learning how to see and it's just fascinating for 2 weeks and and they they they're three and a half weeks old now and they go out at 7 they're all purchased already oh. so it, this will only go for seven more weeks or a total of seven weeks and the series will be over and they will go one by one over a couple of days probably so let and me ask I'll... you a couple of questions here <laughs> because i think the end the end is is coming for this experience but i'm interested <laughs> do you do you leave it running while you sleep uh no okay but it's on. I mean, if I'm up, if I'm around, it's it's, and it's not on all the time. It's, it's just a good deal of the time. If I only really need one monitor, I just have this running on the other one. Mm. And your particular affinity for golden retrievers, as well, because I had one. Yes. Yeah. Is, yeah. Is, so yeah, a terrier or schnauzer or spaniel puppies may not have the same. Oh, I think just about any puppy would do. Mm. The fact that these are golden retrievers helps. <laughs> but, uh, but no, the process is, is interesting because they don't even really look like golden. I mean, puppies pretty much, at least at, at three weeks, pretty much look like puppies. Mm. <laughs> you know, they don't look like what they're going to be. Um, but I get to watch the mother and her behavior, you know, and uh, it's just it's fascinating. There's this one piece of furniture in in their area that I'm surprised they haven't really caught on to yet. I mean, it's not easy for them to get on it. Mm-hmm. One of them's actually doing it now, but mm. but I'm sure that at some point they're going to discover that this is the high ground. 
<laughs> you know, and that they can they can use it to survey the territory and launch attacks and stuff. But I mean, they're they're just they're probably another week or two away from you know having mapped out their little territory and knowing who's who and that these are people or and that's the dog and this is a a ball and you know they just sort of bump into things and you know and then chew on them or something it's just it's it's really it's really been fun and instructive and it's given me much more sympathy for humans mm. just just realizing that this really is you know i mean for Tens of millions, hundreds of millions of years, our ancestors pretty much lived like this. Yes. And, uh, you know, all this fancy stuff that we do, all this talking and thinking and <laughs> Skyping and shit, is just such a, a recent overlay on our ancient inheritance. So anyway, it's just, it's just been really fun actually living with them. I mean, it's, it's, you know, you go to someone's house and you see the puppies and you play with mm-hmm. them and they're cute, you know, but I've never really been through this process of watching them grow from birth up through this, this stage. And it's just been amazing. It's actually quite addictive. I mean, my in-laws have a distinct problem as I think many people who have had those experiences have associated with wanting puppies. Like they've had puppies for a period of time They've seen them from birth through development, as you describe. Yeah. And it's actually quite an addictive process. <laughs> because basically, once you've experienced... Like kids, maybe. Perhaps, you know? <laughs> yeah, for, for a certain group yeah. of people. Yeah, but yeah. What's particularly interesting is the... I mean, the reason that we have domestic animals, like puppies and kittens and these kind of things, is because that they have societal structures that fit in or are simpatico with our societal structures. Well, I wouldn't go so far as to say the reason we have them, but certainly a reason we have them. Well, compared to, say, bears or... Um, oh, no, no, I'm just talking about the... Re- no, 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 yes, of course. No, I mean, look, if they didn't have that quality, we couldn't keep them... I mean, we we could cage them, but we wouldn't have the same yeah. experience. Oh, yeah, them. it wouldn't be the same relationship. It's, so yeah. my view yeah. is that in terms of what makes a domestic animal, this, I think, is maybe even worth using the uh, sacred the in these circumstances. I, through the week, watched a documentary that the BBC put together that basically a number of people that I knew in the UK and Australia and a few in the US had already seen associated with taking a village in the UK and putting GPS uh, trackers and cameras on the cat population. Yeah. And um, the thing that came through that that I found fascinating, that I didn't know most of the stuff that they stated in the documentary, I had already, I mean, I'm, I read in this kind of area, um, yeah. and I have an interest in, in cat populations. The thing that I didn't know, which rang very true for me, is the period of time uh, between four and eight weeks that a kitten is alive, if they don't have access to human contact over that period of time, they will be feral. Oh, yeah. Right, and yeah. I think that's a very interesting phenomenon because our oldest cat, our female, um, I discovered when she was four weeks old. In fact, she was the physical development stage of a three-week-old kitten, but she was actually four weeks old because she'd lived in a wall in an apartment yeah. complex. Um, so I'm very, I'm very conscious of what a, a four-week-old cat is like in terms of. Um, yeah. f- firstly, the fact that it still has even though she'd been left out to die by her 
kin, she still had basic levels of survival, which made it relatively difficult, although she was unable to move when I caught her. Bringing her back and feeding her, there was an interaction of maybe three or four days before she realised that I was okay. And through that period of time, it was actually exactly for the reason that I started talking about this, because I was, my wife and I were living with an animal that would enact harm on us yeah. for that period of time. <laughs> Even though she was small, she would hiss no, and claw very yeah, violently, right. enough yeah. to enact real damage. And yeah. it's funny, um, she has that in her implicitly, if she's ever confronted by a dog, thankfully this only happened once, she can actually do real damage to a dog oh, yeah. just instinctively. Yeah. Which yeah. obviously maybe is slightly more tuned from her experiences living in the wall versus, you know, a standard house cat that grows yeah. up in, in yeah. kingdom. Yeah, she doesn't have that early exactly. experience. But yeah. it's, it is very interesting observing animals through this yeah. period of time, particularly domesticated animals, because you realise that if it weren't for the human interactions, if they were living in, um, you know... A burrow yeah. or a cave or something Anywhere, like they that. would be wild animals. Exactly, <laughs> that's right. And yeah, you know these these breeders are interesting because I get I overhear their some of their conversations, mm. you know, and they actually have a whole series that they go through every day with every puppy, uh, getting them acclimated to people and mm. and making them docile. They they put them on their back and stroke yes. them yes. and get them used to the idea of being submissive. Yes, <laughs> you know it's and you know it's it's just a Amazing, and every day they go through this like two or three times a day for every puppy. Mm. They have done experiments on, I think it was kittens, but it could have been, I think actually it was rats, where they took rat uh, babies, which I think are called kittens as well. Anyway, they took the, the baby rats and brushed them with um, like a, a fine paintbrush to yeah. give the same experience you know, of stroking. I read something about this. It, mm. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, go on. I don't remember the details. but My, I, my I, recollection, I just, again, yeah. I don't remember the details specifically as well, but I think it basically it trained them mentally in a different way. I think they were measuring um It had something responses. to do with their whiskers, didn't it? No, I think they've done it. This is a pretty, I think it might be a relatively standard uh, rat test, but just in terms of um, introducing another... Um, into the rat's early psyche, I guess, um, yeah. and I think it had it, it changed basically their um, heart rate response and a variety mm, of other yeah. things associated sure. with these kind of interactions. Where normally this would have been a fearful thing, I think, if it had happened um, through the way that they'd be raised normally. And this yeah, is very right. similar Anything to unexpected yeah. is fearful. Yeah, yeah, this is exactly the whole notion of holding ah, and yeah. stroking a puppy or yeah. a kitten relatively early on to get them used to the senses and the sense that humans are not adversarial creatures. They're actually part of their survival fundamentally. Yeah. Yeah, but no, it's fascinating stuff. You know, I also uh, have been reminded and thinking about recently. Uh, you know who Temple Grandin is, the autistic uh, cattle <laughs> person. <laughs> well, anyway, anyway. She, she's got autism and and has written several. But she's a high functioning autistic and mm -hmm. has written several books on it. And she developed what she calls the squeeze machine. Have you ever heard of that? Continue. It's a for it's a box uh, with this got hydro well not a box it's like a like a vice sort mm -hmm. of that has pneumatic uh, pumps on it and she lays in it and she can act and it squeezes her and really immobilizes her mm. 
And apparently, it's really effective for a lot of autistics uh, who are just in, in sort of turmoil all the time mm. that when they're immobilized like that, uh, they become very calm. Mm. And, and I thought back to that with some puppies uh, that were here uh, before Sid was here. Mm-hmm. There were a couple of little puppies, and, and one night, one of them was terrified. There were some noises going on around. But these were small dogs, so I could hold them in my arms. Mm-hmm. Uh, you couldn't do that with a golden retriever. Oh. They're too damn strong. But, but I, I was strong enough to totally overpower it so that it couldn't move a mm-hmm. single muscle. Yeah. And within five seconds... It just completely relaxed. Yeah. It just it just gave up. It's just it realized it couldn't do anything, and it quit struggling, and he and he and he got very calm. And it was fascinating. And I and I did it several times with in yes. different circumstances and tested that with him. Yeah. And, and it w- it was true. And I'm not quite sure what it all means, <laughs> but but I can imagine that you know the idea of a straitjacket. I think there's there's a technique, and this may have fallen out of favor, but it certainly was in favor through my rearing and my brother's rearing to do that to small babies as well. Yeah. In terms yeah, of calming I, them down. Yeah. I think it, that it seems to work across most mammals anyway. Mm. I had a dentist in Las Vegas who promptly went bankrupt <laughs> and moved out, who had one of those, although it was only a half machine. And yeah. one, I think maybe my first or second <laughs> visit, my wife said, Tom, why don't you go and get into that machine and it was the strain because I literally, um, I literally levitated above the machine because it was so disconcerting for me that I just basically pulled my body out in a strange kind of contortion, <laughs> much to my wife's amusement. She thought it was absolutely hysterical that well, uh, I couldn't stand has, the machine. Yeah, well, yeah, well, I can. That would be my first, my initial reaction. Mm. It is claustrophobic, mm. you know. But it seems that once you get past that, that thing, they struggle at first. But when they really get that they can't, like, yeah, for, I'd say for five seconds, the dog would struggle. I could feel, you know, mm-hmm. the, the tension movement. But after a few seconds, when it really realized it couldn't move, it, it just became totally calm. And I suspect that might work for people, too. Mm. Well, you know, anyway, it was just all the whole thing just has struck me as very interesting. I was you can actually buy a squeeze machine. They they cost like six thousand dollars. Yeah, that's how much the dentist paid for uh, for his. Yeah, and these and then then I realized that this is related to the whole concept of bondage. Hmm. You know, and I don't. I never really thought much about bondage. I just figured, you know, there's a bunch of weird people in the world, and everybody likes different things. But I'm thinking that bondage may not have much to do with sexuality at all. It may have to do with this submission thing, this this giving up and this calming thing that comes about as a result of being absolutely immobilized, and all the rest around it, all the fancy knots and the weird shit. Is just our typical human perversion, but what it's really about is is this immobilization. I'm wondering if this is the term, but there's an idea of is it it's auto asphyxiation or erotic asphyxiation? Yeah, well, that, yeah, I've heard. Yeah, and my yeah. view is that actually, yeah, I, I never really understood that one. Yeah, that's another good one. <laughs> I think it's it's yeah. There's, there seem to be a variety of things. So, I mean, the thing about bondage is, so, uh, my understanding is similar to the asphyxiation that it's about cutting off oxygen and getting various responses to it, which could ultimately be the thing with the restraint as well. 
that basically well, when you're loaded. well, yeah, if you're constricting them to the point where they can't believe or breathe, breathe that yes. would be a problem. Yes. Yeah. it is a yeah. very it is a very strange um, space. I mean, this is kind of waterboarding yeah. and a variety of other things too, <laughs> on some fundamental level. That basically what you're yeah. trying to get to is some kind of shock reaction. It is all very very curious. Uh, yeah, I um, well, it's just. You know, yeah, it all gets back to our animal nature in mm. some way. You know, the fact that we are have these bodies that that integrate with the world somehow, and and apparently we're really pre-programmed for a whole bunch of shit. Yes, it's and then we come along and stick language on top of all of that, and then the fun starts. Yes. <laughs> I've been reflecting on this through the week, through your... I think you've only posted one Kurzweil post on your yeah. page. But Yeah, so far. I'll so probably far. be posting some more. Yeah, no, I, I anticipated that. I've, I've been toing and froing associated with um, your Kurzweil posts because ultimately I do appreciate for you and probably a good number, I mean, just based on the number of friends that I have that like Kurzweil's work and I have mutual friends with him, that Kurzweil is important in a lot of people's lives, associated with perhaps just providing, uh, I don't know, a kind of passive introduction to the possibilities um, that, you know, people such as myself get enjoyment through doing active development in, like Noble Lake, for example. Yeah. Um, and I think it's interesting because the thing that you posted contained um, a couple of paradox, well, not necessarily paradoxes, but just fundamental inconsistencies in, in simulation sense, which I think resonated with me initially. And then I thought, no, this is, this is equivalent to poetry. This is like, you know, from poetry to physics, you can't use, you know, physics analysis. Well, he's on trying poetry. to write a book for people like me. Exactly. Not, not, yeah. Not for people like you. Exactly. <laughs> so yeah. my view through this is kind of ebbed and flowed from calm. Well, what is it that you object to in that? Particular? Not, I think the thing, the uniqueness perhaps about our positions here, and I would certainly assert this to anyone who communicates with me and a few try to, um, maximize the utility of this communication. But my experience, for example, when I've met people that have been to Afghanistan, when I find out that they've been to Afghanistan, I usually ask them a series of quite intimate questions associated with the smells, the, the grit of Afghanistan, the experiences that they've had in certain areas, the um, kind of sublime beauty elements, um, mm -hmm. historical aspects of what it's like to interact with Afghans, um, you know, these kind of things. Because, I mean, you know, in, in a utopian world, Afghanistan would be pretty high on the places in the world that I'd like to visit. I mean, it's visually an extremely beautiful part of the world, particularly in the mountains. But also, it's a fascinating kind of cultural area if it weren't well, for... Well, in an ideal world, exactly. those cultures wouldn't be there. Well, no, you see, <laughs> in my view, my view is actually, and this is interesting... We would have evolved beyond tribal well, bullshit. historically they had. I mean, what's happened in Afghanistan, basically, is just, you know, is is a, a very strange anomaly that the people who were there historically... Um, the only people that stayed were the people that could cope or adapt or interact with the environment that was presented. And a majority of the 
the others left. Um, so you do have a strange circumstance there uh, currently. But returning to this point, I, yeah. I would hope, um, maybe perhaps artificially, that I present myself as an accessible person in terms of talking about the rich tapestry of simulation experiences and particularly current ideas. I mean, I have two very interesting, even though I've, I've um, uh, stated quite clearly that I'm not going to do any academic writing going forward, I have two conferences that I have to give presentations for um, coming up next year, and I am considering very strongly what I give in those um, presentations. Oh, yeah, it's going to be fun. So, so yeah, but, but I think oh, the yeah. thing that the thing that interests me is particularly. I'm going through some kind of embodiment, disembodiment, kind of, um, which ultimately is not um, not uh, Kurzweil at all. It's a very very old physicist who um, came out and apparently was anti global warming who looks a little bit like Gollum, um, uh, from Princeton, <laughs> and his name is... Anyway, uh, so I am in part channeling some of his work in the notion that humans will evolve to a sphere of gas um, in some of my considerations. Well, that's a ways off. No, exactly. I don't think we need to worry about no, 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 that here's, here's the interesting part, because the thing that interests me, which is fundamentally what we do in these kind of experiences initially, is that we put ourselves out into some kind of strange existence where ultimately um, our self and our processing and um, our ideas exist in a form that is very external to our physical form. I mean, you can look back at people like Terence McKenna in this light in terms of the fact that their ideas continue to percolate in electrons that are uh, continue to be yeah, transmitted yeah, through space. Yeah, yeah right. But, well, let's start yeah, with yeah. writing. That was the beginning of it. In the <laughs> practical case with Noble Ape, what I'm exploring currently with the network processing gives the ability for a variety of functions that you would normally attribute to uh, as a single entity to mm -hmm. a group potentially and perhaps this notion right. of Gaia or all these kind of things come through that yeah. as well but it is yeah. a very interesting um it is a very interesting shift in my own thinking that comes just through introducing network processing fundamentally yeah um also uh, one of the conferences the other well the concept of self mm -hmm. is what is, is it turns out that that's just a very arbitrary thing mm. You know, I mean, well, not arbitrary totally, but I mean, it it can be it can be defined many different ways, and they all they all make sense if you want to do it that way. Mm. So I think potentially there are ways to um, rejoin perhaps these two divided narratives associated with the um, the poets like um, our friend Ray. Um, and I guess the engineers, physicists, what have you, such as what I do with Noble Ape. But ultimately, yeah. I think the poetry goes is, is, has a historical legacy, which the kind of contemporary development doesn't. And what interested me about your post, returning to that, was yeah. actually how few processes you need in order to get a variety of scales of um, human function and thought. Oh, I know. And yeah. I think that's yeah. what interests me in particular about the idea of an entity existing mm -hmm. over a distributed network rather than at a particular point. Right. Um, and I think through these kind yeah, of Yeah, it functions together that yeah. counts. It yeah. doesn't give it make a difference where it's located. Exactly. So I Well, it does make a difference. It has time things that have to be accounted for, but, but still its unity is in its functioning. But time doesn't exist in... The interesting thing about time is that it doesn't exist in a point. 
it actually exists in a relatively abstract well, time, yeah. Time in relatively abstract space. And in, well, in, <laughs> yeah. in fact, actually, what what it is is the junction of a series of things which don't need to be joined at the same point, but can in fact be joined. So you end up with this amazingly elaborate metaphysics, which is what I'm exploring currently, yeah. kind of conceptually and through code. Metaphysics, mm-hmm. meaning what? Meaning um, here a means of, expl- well, um, a, a thing that is above what is being kind of computationally done that can be explained in abstract separate from the actual computation so i wouldn't call meta, that an epistemal i wouldn't yeah meta computation well here's yeah. why it is metaphysics because through the framing of that you should have a kind of linguistic soup a series of philosophical descriptors that you can actually apply to um, both critique and also accentuate other philosophical ideas. Consider chaos theory, like the mathematics. Yeah. Fractals, Matterbrot set, etc. That mathematically is relatively dry. It makes beautiful pictures, but it's relatively dry mathematically. What do you mean? What? Dr- you mean simple? No, is that what I you mean, mean. What do you mean I, by dry? I mean, it takes. Um, in order to understand fractal mathematics equations, you need probably at least a first-year university or probably high year 12 level mathematical understanding, because you need to understand recursion, you need to understand integer space, you need to understand uh, multi-dimensional equations. Yeah, uh, well, it depends on, yeah, all right. So you you don't need, you don't really need much, though. I mean, it's really pretty simple. Uh, well, relatively speaking. I mean, the formula itself, uh, the Mandelbrot said, is what, six, uh, you know, keystrokes? But do you understand, (laughs) do you understand what that means in mathematical terms? Uh, more or less, yeah. Okay, so, chaos is it existed in the formulae. And chaos as it existed in the discussions associated with the wings of the butterfly see, I, okay, and these yeah, kind of things. Yeah, you, yeah. This is this notion of the physics. Or I don't see Mandelbrot as chaos at all. Well. I mean, maybe you do, but that's, okay. uh, to me, chaos okay, let's move, is, let's is a move, different, yeah. Let's move from that. And um, there, okay. there are a series of existing, like, fractal dimensionality and these kind of things which exist yeah. in the kind of chaos description. Again, I would consider relatively dry eyes glazed over when described to a lay person. But the the meta of that, the descriptions of the wings of the butterfly, I mean, in, in quantum mechanics too, quantum mechanics from, you know, Heisenberg and Schrodinger's wave equation and all these kind of things, again, I would consider relatively dry mathematically. Okay. Right. But conceptually, the overarching, which doesn't require you to have the knowledge of the mathematics. Yeah. No, no, I understand. So, yeah. so this is the notion of, of metaphysics in this context that you create from from the underlying physics you create a language that flows along above that to describe elements of it, but also that gives you a kind of greater degree of conceptual understanding when you want to talk to not necessarily lay people, but potentially philosophers or people that are thinking. Well, anybody who doesn't understand that level. Exactly. So, (laughs) yeah. So, I mean, my view is that um, this is a critical part of, in whatever you call what noble ape is, intelligent agents, what have you, to have this language above what you're actually simulating to describe the concepts and get this information to people who may not be, you know, very interested yeah. in the very underlying mathematical elements. But, and I think Kurzweil is 
a, a layer, even above what I'm describing as the metaphysics here. He really is writing poetry for folks who are who want to be inspired, but don't necessarily want to get their hands dirty in the code or start exploring <laughs> these kind of things, which is all very well. I don't, I and mean, this is this is my ebbing and flowing. Oh, which is all very well. What a what a nice way of putting it. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, I, I go through. I That's go, all right, you know. So we've all got our uh, positions here, you know. <laughs> I, I hold many that are against the popular. Uh, form, but so I no, guess, you define yourself by doing that. Yeah. Yeah. So, so from this topic, and I'm not sure how I'm going to actually put this out because um, one of the podcasts that I listen to periodically, and I've talked a little bit about previously, um, features uh, Lorenzo Haggerty, and he has made a series of quite interesting kind of discussion points associated with the NSA eavesdropping on us all kind of narrative, <laughs> which I actually I again probably have a relatively unique perspective on this but i i was curious what your is mm. this too is this too caterpillar for you or do you have a general perspective uh, on this? it's kind of well it's kind of interesting in some ways um uh, i can see how it could be useful uh and and really not invasive of my privacy i mean there may be ways to extract information that from the whole network in a sense that that you know, that doesn't, unless they choose to, uh, have anything to do with me. Uh, but on the other, and then on the other hand, again, uh, it's, it's just merely our technology and what we can do with it. How people use it is a social thing. And you're right, it's just, it's just those fucking caterpillar people again. You know, I mean, we've got this great, it's like we got like television. That's a wonderful thing. But what do we do with it? We, the, the commercial people took it over, you know? So, the technology, I think, is um, really sort of independent of what we're, we choose to do with it. So, and, and I frankly, I don't give a shit about it, really. They can spy all they want, you know? I mean, screw them. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's that, my sense. <laughs> my perspective is similar, except I, it, it didn't come to me as a surprise at all. I mean, well, it, no, of course <laughs> not. That's of course. What the hell do you think they're doing? Exactly. I mean, they're, they're like, well, we are simpatico in this light, Heron, because that was exactly my view. Was That's like, what they're there for. Exactly. That's their job, yeah. you know, is to run the world. But, but it, the interesting point becomes, because so there's this whole kind of moral discourse over whether it's right or wrong oh, to do this, that. which Jesus. exactly, this is my perspective here. Yeah. But, well, I mean, you can, you can have that argument, but that one take, it's not even an argument. You can just state your position, and that's the end of it that's not a very fruitful discussion and it doesn't change oh, it's anything bad. no it doesn't do anything it's yeah. just uh, you know people can sit around well that's what people we've been trained to be you know passive to have an opinion about things mm. <laughs> you know i don't like that mm. or i like that and then you can go back to work and uh, and shut up you know mm. so or I vote that's even better. See, then you can vote for somebody who doesn't like, or at least who says he doesn't like the same stuff you don't like. <laughs> yes, if I could find that person, I might actually vote for them, but I don't actually see those people. <laughs> if only they existed. Well, but, they probably do, but it doesn't make any difference anyway. Yeah. You so know, it's, it's a systemic problem that needs to change. <laughs> yes, yes. So my perspective, the things that interest me is the actual information which has come out associated with 
firstly, it would be fascinating to see what they've actually done. They, yes. they claim they've they've prevented um, s- several uh, terrorist plots. Let's talk I'd about love that. To, you'd Let's love to see that. how they did that. Well, this is the interesting part, Heron. This is the interesting aspect associated with spying, because if they stop domestic terror plots then there should be arrest sheets associated with that. There's actually an interesting movement between Mm. terrorism as it exists in this whole secrecy cloud and when they arrest people in the US associated with acts of terror. Well, unless, of course, in special cases, there aren't any things like that. Well, here's the interesting part. Maybe they just kill them. Well, okay, so th- that that exists in that exists outside the U.S. without question. I mean, that's the yeah, whole notion. And of it may very well. And what makes you think it wouldn't happen in the U.S.? Because the it's the publicity engine associated with this. The whole notion of the war on terror is a phenomena which is associated with a publicity engine, which means that if any terrorist is caught domestically. They need to be shown up as an example of how successful the war on terror is. Well, being. of course, but now that's the question. Then why isn't we haven't that we haven't heard of these many plots that were foiled? Well, there are only there are <laughs> yeah. only there are only ten that they have claimed in the U.S. They've only come out and said ten, and of that, they've only really detailed one, of which there is relatively sketchy arrest information. I mean, what's particularly curious here is that if you take it to one extreme, it does identify, um, you know, perhaps internal rendition in the US, as you describe, where there would be no arrest sheets or these kind of things. What's even more curious is what they've missed. And I think my initial response to this, and I did a search to see if any news media had followed this up as well, was the extraordinary amount of, to the point where I own books that the deceased Boston, you know, bomb suspect highlighted in his Amazon wish list. That was a relatively <laughs> no, that's a relatively public fingerprint. Yeah. But there were a whole series of private things well, through Facebook, through all these networks. Oh yeah, they, they, my Facebook uh, yeah. yeah will put me out, out but, of no, the but here's real the thing. Fast. This is the extraordinary <laughs> thing is actually ten domestic plots within the US is phenomenally low. That's like basically an F score as far as I'm concerned for surveying the entire population. What it shows is either they're distinctly incompetent associated with the information, <laughs> which I actually think it, the more I well, the more I read about this fellow in Hong Kong, the more I realise that actually, I mean, the notion firstly of contracting out the uh, the sifters is <laughs> very it's extraordinarily stupid. Yeah, I mean, to the lowest cost contractor, well, actually, right? The low yeah, bidder. Yeah. So it's like, I mean, it really is extraordinary. The insights that you get through the, this information when it's made public makes you realize that they're really fundamentally incompetent. Yes. That's why I don't worry about them. I feel I'll, the same way. Yeah, they're, but, they're a bunch of clowns. They can't even control their own brains. The interesting thing about this is, however, the reaction to it. And although Lorenzo Haggerty has made claims previously associated with changes and things that he is going to do based on the latest news associated with spying and other things, my view is actually, in the face of these kind of claims... One shouldn't shrivel up and disappear and not communicate through these interfaces because then ultimately you're just 
you're just letting the and here the terrorists refer to the people that are watching. Well, this is good letting... for news for Apple because apparently Apple's stuff is not available to them. It's encrypted in ways they can't get into. At least that's the claim. Yes. And I think Skype is too. I, well, I think it's all very interesting. I mean, my view is that you probably – but then again, I, I may have told you this story, but I'll tell it again if I haven't. My mother worked for the Australian equivalent of the Secret Service when I was in my mid to late teens – which meant that our phone was tapped, and we knew our phone was tapped. And it didn't really, I mean, it affected on one occasion when a friend of mine came over and made a call about a party he was going to, and my mother got a transcript the next day. But we (laughs) knew our phone was tapped, and we just assumed, and I have the same view associated with all the correspondence that I do. My assumption is that this stuff is going to be read. And my my view is not that one changes one's behaviour in the light of this kind of information. If anything... You know, one needs to be very proactive and put oneself out there and make, you know, relatively outlandish and sometimes extreme claims as much (laughs) as possible, just basically to say, irrespective of whatever the normal is within the likes of these organisations, firstly, they are vastly incompetent. Secondly, they haven't, you know, they haven't developed the strength of resources or the, you know, the intelligence that exists in, as you've noted, with Apple um, in commerce, but also I think through, you know, I think I think the open source community can easily circumvent and has easily circumvented yeah. a number of these things and will continue to do so. So my view is rather than um, going into hiding and, you know, refusing to interact through various things and making the news story anything more than my view and your view, which seems to be, duh, like, you weren't expecting these people to be doing these things? I mean, let's move on. Well, they've so, just it as much as said so, it seems to me that this isn't really even news. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Moving on. Huh. So on the, on the Stone Ape... Um, By the way, I want to I add a little thing to mm-hmm. that story, because long time... You've seen my writing system, Phonographics. Mm-hmm. Yes. And the weird character set not just the the altered regular alphabet but the the other characters i mean you've at least seen them right of course i've, I've read your journals heron yeah. okay all right well so i wrote a letter to the white house back when i first developed that system um in the 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 weird script and basically it said uh i'll Congratulations, you deciphered this. My name is such and such, and I can be reached here. If you think this is interesting, give me a call. And um, and so I mailed it off, and I was and I, and I was figuring probably it would it would go to the White House, and then somebody would see that it's not in English, and they'd send it somewhere uh, to be translated, and then pretty soon they'd get that it's no language that anybody knew. And I, and of course, I had no idea. Would they just throw it away at that part, or would it go to the Navy Cryptology Lab? So my 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 letter was to the Navy Cryptology Lab because I figured that's the only way they'd ever figure out what it said. Uh, and I never heard anything from them, so I don't know if my thing was unbreakable or nobody gave a shit and they just threw it away or or what. <laughs> Brief question, which stems perhaps to the whole purpose of this thing. When you wrote your phone number, did you? Oh, I don't think I put. I, I don't remember now. But I wrote. I, I did the whole thing phonetically. So if 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 a, if it was seven seven one four, the seven would have been written out as as S E V. Well, you know, phonetically seven. Mm. 
Yeah. So they would have had to figure out how the characters work. Once they had it, they, you know. But again, if they're assuming it's just a code, a one-to-one switch with the alphabet, they'll get nowhere. You see, Heron, you should have put Ryson in the letter, and then you would have gotten <laughs> Then I would have got their attention. <laughs> see, now, bomb that, maybe this. this just got their attention when they hear this. <laughs> that was Tom Barbelay, folks. They <laughs> who know said that. Not Heron Stone. <laughs> we have a file, Heron. Yeah, probably you're right. <laughs> Clearly yours is going to be slightly older than mine, but mine might be slightly longer than yours. <laughs> <laughs> Moving on, yes, yeah. It's funny, actually. Humor, the whole notion of humor in these kind of <laughs> circumstances. Yeah, that's right. I guess if you're laughing when you say rice, and it's okay, maybe. <laughs> yeah, it's okay. And that was Heron Stone, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> anyway, moving on from this. So. So somewhere in the um, in the ether, um, I think it was uh, Peter Stemple, our uh, a listener of both uh, Stone Ape and Model Rail Radio, an occasional participant, uh, posted Jaron Lanier's assessment associated with the death of the middle class through open source, or at least I think that was the the tack um, onto the uh, Facebook group. I've had a long standing to the point where actually I wrote a, a satire article on Jared Linier in a Malaysian newspaper when I was in Malaysia briefly. He was he is one of the VR guys, isn't he? Well, he's I think he's one of the guys that killed VR actually. Well, but I mean, I mean he was early on, he was one of the people who he's were the uh, known VR. Yeah. He's the yeah, face okay. of yeah. VR yeah. basically. Okay. Yeah. Um, and I know I'm one degree of separation away from him. I mean, Bruce Damer spends a bit of time with Jaron in Berkeley when he goes up to Berkeley. So I know probably more than most about Jaron in terms of his personal life, although I've never met the guy. Um, but I feel very strongly that um, the damage that he did to VR and his whole kind of blasé attitude associated with that, I mean... <laughs> <laughs> there have been people, Douglas Rushkov's a good example, who have done similar damage, but in Douglas Rushkov's case, he actually came out and apologised publicly following what he did. I, it's not that I haven't forgiven Jaron Lanier, but he forms a narrative which kind of continues on perfectly into this discussion associated with how open source is basically, or how kind of crowdsourcing is basically destroying the middle class. <laughs> Which I actually think is really quite yeah. interesting. Have you have you read of this or anything associated? No, with that? no, no, not nothing. I know. So, folks, I, if I'm, you want if you want her not to read information, the place to post it is the Stone Ape Facebook group. I, think I saw it there, uh, <laughs> but I just don't care about yes. the middle class. <laughs> You know, I, I'm trying to destroy the middle class. So good. good. If, if if he's helping, good. I, the thing that I find, I mean, this again is the um, Kurzweil to me. This again is, I mean, I up until probably, well, up until I got the job at Netflix, felt very strongly that open source had fundamentally destroyed the software or aspects of the software industry. But there's, a, there's an additional point which is after you develop open source for a period of time, you basically get known for your open source and then you can get employed based on what people know <laughs> about your open source. By a company that has proprietary it's, software. Well, actually, to, to be fair, to be <laughs> right. fair here, Heron, uh, Netflix has open sourced a substantial part of their software in the past two years to the point where I think um, within probably the next three or four years, 
there will be almost no part of the Netflix platform that is proprietary. Really? I think it's actually phenomenal. See, I don't know. I just don't know very much about this. I mean, yeah. you know, I've been sort of locked in the Apple garden for a long time, yeah. and uh, that seems to satisfy me. So in, and I, yeah. in the cloud, in the thing that exists that basically distributes all this information and also makes it accessible dynamically, so... For example, through peak times when people want to watch Netflix the most, there are servers up and warm, and then low times there are no servers draining power that would be otherwise utilised. This whole notion of kind of cloud computing. A vast portion of that, and a substantial bit that Netflix has contributed over the past couple of years, is actually open source. The components that continue to be proprietary are pretty forever shrinking, and what's actually really interesting with regards to media is these, you know, these media companies, um, Time Warner, Viacom, all these kind of things that still have old, old standing, we make all our money through proprietary, you know, content. They basically are pushing themselves further and further down into a relatively small set of kind of cryptography interfaces to the media. And the vast majority of the actual software part of these kind of games uh, could and should exist in an open source form, and I think increasingly will, where yeah. the commercial aspect of open source is exactly this notion of kind of cherry-picking engineers that are part of that contributive effort. It's very different to software in the 1970s where everything was proprietary and, you know, you sold your software and that's how you made your money. Um, yeah. And I think this this notion, I was very sceptical of this even when you and I first started talking, you know, three Skeptical years ago. Skeptical of what? This notion that people would actually get employed from open source software oh, and the fact right. that a vast okay. majority of open source contributors weren't actually getting employed. Then yeah, course, it's not the software. Buying the software is the issue. It's using the software, and you need people to do that. Yeah. <laughs> and I mean, I think that there is still, I mean, tr- truth be told, there is still, you know, the, the cloud is still being sold. There's no open source it's- cloud. Um, but the components within the yeah. cloud are open source, so it is an interesting yeah. thing. But it's being it would pushed. seem that the the direction is for the whole damn system to be totally open. Period. Yeah, I think you know it's just there. It run by the United Nations or something. You know, or, I mean, you, you and I certainly exist in this domain in terms of what we produce out of our you know workaday lives, and I think increasingly. This is the phenomenon, and this is a this is a completely what Lanier is commenting against. I mean, his notion is actually a kind of return to almost nineteen seventies kind of software company feudalism in some regard. I mean, it is really <laughs> quite curious. And he's yeah. historically, I mean, this is how he killed virtual reality: is just maintaining a narrative which was disconnected from actually what was being developed and what was... I mean, this, again, I guess is some of my critique of Kurzweil, is that if you actually found what was going on currently in terms of what was being developed, it would, in fact, be a lot more interesting and perhaps more uh, elaborate poetry could be written about these kind of experiences. But, again, you know, these people, maybe Kurzweil more than Lanier, have been successful doing what they do. But I think Lanier is really quite a curious kind of commudgeon character, and it was interesting that Peter Stimple... Um, you know, picked up on his um, musing because it was put to me when I talked at um, Stanford um, in 2010, I guess, 
that um, Lanier, which, who, his claims were the same then as they are now, um, actually had a point. Um, but, I, I mean, my circumstances have changed dramatically in the past two, three years. So, you know, I, I am coming to this from a different perspective now, in large part due to my own luck, but also due to something that I've done for more than 17 years now, Heron. <laughs> it is pretty humbling when you look back and see how long you can work on something. Yes. Yeah, some of my stuff goes back. Yeah, 40, know, more than 40 years, you know, it's amazing. <laughs> yes, I, I've read the journals. I, I know the uh, the body of work. I had an experience through the week that was actually rather curious that I want to share with the uh, listening audience because it made me realize that um, maybe due to Kurzweil et al., but um, we've still got a long way to go in some of these areas. So as I've described previously, I'm working on a comic book project and part of the comic book is um well, it's conducted in caravans uh and i'm a bit of a caravan aficionado i really quite like like early 1980s caravans 1970s caravans bruce damer has a couple of them actually on his property and there's something remarkable about this notion that you can exist in a relatively small but multifunctional space oh yeah um, it doesn't take much room exactly yeah. Which I yeah. think is a really, I mean, my wife and I talk about, um, you know, our retirement is potentially living in a caravan and, uh, you know, traveling yeah. around uh, as, as people do, particularly in this country, but also in the UK. Yeah. And, yeah. and it's something that I'm, anyway, so my artist, um, Anita, is 25. And when she read the word caravan, she thought of a hypermodern kind of car room combination thing which really has only existed i guess from the late 90s on and drew one of these things in where i had immediately visually thought caravan i.e uh two wheels on a kind of long haul structure uh with you know uh, shades and various other things um so what you, you what we call a trailer no it's different in america no no no, no, no. it's um, i think it's still called a caravan in america it's basically um, a... It's something you tow behind another yeah, vehicle. Yeah, but a trailer, a trailer does has potentially well, some open-air space. I mean, put it this way, I've been able to uh, converge my definitional terms with Bruce Damer talking about his caravans. So I well, anyway, I know what you're talking about. It's, anyway. it's, a, it's a vehicle that is towed by another vehicle exactly. on two wheels. Yes. Yeah, okay. Uh, with the view that um, certainly in the writing and the stuff that um, Anita is... is um, turning into a comic book currently, these are things that have just been left in place probably for 10, 15, 20 years, um, sometimes on cement, sometimes just left in place. Um, so they've really become almost permanent structures in their environment to the point where uh, one of the caravans, uh, you know, one of the caravans had a water tank that had been built uh, nearby it and these kind of things. So they basically they have the environment built around them. So I thought, okay, this is a good example where I would go to Google Image Search and actually find yeah. 1980s Australian caravans. How hard can it be? Turns out it's really, really hard <laughs> to use Google Image Search to actually get pictures of a caravan. And it really struck me as surreal how... Well, maybe uh, you're not using the right search terms for Google. So I went through a series. I looked at camper vans. I looked at uh, camping vans. I looked at camping uh, trailers. trailers. Yes. Yeah. I looked at all those terms. And then um, in frustration, and I tried to put in 
huh. dates associated because everything that came yeah. back was hypermodern, yeah. you know, the latest yeah. stuff that was being sold, yeah. and that wasn't what I was yeah. looking for. So after about an hour and a half, and the thing that struck me that I found particularly surreal was most of the image results were people's faces. <laughs> which made absolutely no sense. Yeah, me. yeah, no, I know. When I use Google image search, I'm, <laughs> you know, well, usually the stuff I want po- sort of pops off the page for me, but it's, there's all sorts of other stuff in there that doesn't make any sense at all. Yeah. So I spent an hour and a half doing this last night, and it really struck me as, it's a language problem. I mean, this is the thing that struck me, is that I worked with a fellow who had developed a search engine in the late 90s. He um, would curate museums and libraries, um, and he had developed a a search engine that had a really relatively good understanding of the English language and knew the difference between verbs and nouns and knew the construction of sentences and all these kind of basic things, which you'd assume Google might have, maybe, uh, under all of its stuff. And the idea that you would... um, put in terms which had nothing to do with human faces and you would get images out of human faces to the vast majority really struck me as very very strange so i just want to put that idea out there that there are areas that still need improvement and we've got to kind of make our way somewhere towards you know after about an hour and a half i found an old 1960s photo of a my grandparents' caravan, as it was titled, and that was exactly what I was looking for. It took a substantial amount of time and a great degree of frustration, as you say, trying to find the right search terms and trying to find exactly the right stuff. What did you you search for that that actually gave you a success? Uh, Australian 1970s caravan camping... Uh, like, like I continued okay, yeah. on, and I was trying yeah. various iterations of that, just trying to hone yeah. in where I don't know. I mean, yeah. my friend, you know, I got this friend that that is just has an uncanny ability to find shit. Uh, like I say, I, I'll be looking for, I can spend hours looking for some dumb shit and can't find it. And I call him and tell him what I'm looking for, and five minutes later, he's got it. You know, it just astounds me. And then he tells me this, the search terms, they were just. Like, yeah, <laughs> why didn't I think of that? So, you know? if you may remember a few nights ago associated with electronic publishing, you and yeah. I had this experience, but I'm not this friend, right? No, I'm talking about somebody else. <laughs> but, yeah, I mean, I'm normally very successful, which is why I had, I was really taken aback with how hard it was to yeah. find th- this. And, and when you put the right search term in, you mean you still only found one photograph? Yes. Well, maybe that's the problem. There just aren't any photographs. Maybe Australians are too stupid to work cameras. Well, it is. It does strike me with regards <laughs> to barbecues because Australia made, as I've probably told you, made um, uh, fire barbecues illegal and particular kinds of fire barbecues more than a decade ago now, which was a substantial part of my childhood, either tending or standing around these barbecues <laughs> while sausages cooked. And they've now been completely banned in Australia, to the point where my family has a couple of them rusting behind a shed somewhere, and I would actually import them here, because they're fueled on eucalypts. And there's so many eucalypts in California. So yes, I, so I, when I try to describe this to people, I've done this on multiple occasions, I cannot find images of these Australian barbecues. They just don't exist through the image search. 
Yeah, that's interesting. I'm uh, sure in family Well, there's photos. probably a lot of holes in what yes. we've got. There must be many, many more. And, and if there are that many just from Australia, what, what's it like in Zimbabwe? <laughs> yeah. We're missing a lot. Yeah. The father Bush, whatever you call him, George H.W. Bush. Yeah, I can never get it straight. Yeah, yeah really. See, it, See it in 1991, associated with rap music, I think they left the C off the front of rap. And it's a sample that I used to use frequently in my DJing because it's a beautiful sample because firstly he's got this kind of droll, I'm making a joke now, kind of where he says it. But it also is so clearly the senior Bush that you don't need an explanation of who's saying it. So I thought, and this was something that I actually took off video footage of him saying it. And I've gone back on YouTube and tried to find this quote on YouTube and had no success in finding it. So it's just lost in the annals of history. Yeah. I usually, you know, I'm usually pretty successful at finding what I want. Uh, But, you know, once in a while uh, I'm I'm stuck. But overall, it's, it's, God, it's such a wonderful thing to have access to the information we've got yes there are problems but man so much is available so i've kind of forgotten that we actually didn't record last week because i was in san francisco with limited voice in fact i actually decided to come back early so i was actually back here last friday night but just completely just unable to speak and generally dumbstruck and um (laughs) It was actually really quite interesting going to WWDC. It was um, I bet. the the Apple conference for folks not familiar with yeah. the vernacular. It was really quite moving because it's been ten years since Noble Ape was first demonstrated, and I didn't realize this, but the initial demonstration that they did was to about five thousand people. It, to be in the space, and I'm not, sure, I'm pretty sure it was the same space. But the initial demonstration, they did like a five-minute demonstration just to talk about some of the functionality that was in the new operating system. I think it was actually a transition of hardware. And that was done at their State of the Union talk, which I hadn't realized was attended by basically everyone who had attended the previous talk, which was about 5,000 engineers. And I met people there who knew of Noble Ape. One of my co-workers was a long-time independent um, developer, and he had a number of friends, and when he introduced me, he'd say, and this is the Noble Ape guy, and everyone would go, wow, you're the Noble Ape guy, you know? And it made me realize that this, this yeah. phenomenon... That's great. That must be very satisfying. It's very strange. And to see, in particular, I mean, I basically, I arrived there at about 7 a.m., and I queued, and we were kind of moved around, and at 10, my co-workers arrived at 9.40 and 10.10, and the co-worker that arrived at 9.40 was like seven rows back from me. So arriving there early just did absolutely nothing. We were just moved around in a holding pattern. And we all got to sit in the presence of Tim Cook and co. Um, It was an interesting experience because I don't think... I mean, I've got seven now on, on one of my phones... And it is, it is You've an got interesting... What? Oh, the iOS oh, the 7. OS. Um, okay, yeah. It is an interesting interface. I mean, it's kind of Windowsy, but when you get to it, you realise that this is, this is really um, uh, John Ives' vision 
it's just a with. different it's just different graphics isn't it i mean what the mm. fuck is the big deal that, I, that's it, the, the functionality hasn't changed has it that's i mean i'm sure there are some changes but i mean it's it's all about whether it, it's got shadows or not. Well, no, it's beyond shadows now. It's um, it's associated with a series of kind of simplifications, and the 3D aspect where you move it and the background moves is kind of interesting for the first three minutes. But uh, the thing that struck me was that a series of the features that they brought out were things that I've always wanted. Um, but oh, it, it's been yeah. a deficiency that they haven't been there, so they've just kind of resolved a deficiency. There wasn't a lot of wow for me. I was already kind of prepped for a simplified interface, yeah. which is what I got. But the thing I like—I don't have any problems with the current one. Yeah. You know, it's just I—I I don't get it. I, I would like enhanced functionality. Yeah. But, you know, I so kind of like that they look like real objects. I mean, that's sort of the whole point of having a screen like that. Well, a, you know, it, with a screen, it, the, I mean, they might as well have a regular 100 DPI. Well, maybe not. But, I mean, that's one of the advantages of having a high, you know, high-res screen is you can duplicate things like that. I, I like that. The point that they made, which I do understand from a kind of user interface perspective, is by simplifying the user interface, you actually give an ability to get more out of the user interface. So there's a lot of by, things... So wait a minute, what do you mean by simplify? So you mean by taking shadows out or in taking no, let, something... Let me explain this. Let three, me explain three. this. One of the yeah. examples that they gave, which I think illustrated this perfectly, is the compass. You probably yeah. don't use the compass. But the compass, no. as it is in iOS 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, yeah. was a physical compass model with rotating yeah. things. It looks like a compass. So yeah. if you remove that realism, for a start, you can make the north, south, east, west rotate as letters rotating. They don't have to... They rotate in the right orientation. So the N and the S and the W and the E stay as N, S, W, E, um, rather than being rotating N, S, W, E. But you also ah, have additional ah, okay. space well, within you, that. We also have additional you, why space within the Why couldn't you do center. that by keeping... No, but why couldn't you just have that happen uh, on a real one? Because that, that goes against the realism. The letters no, but, that's have just, to no, but there's no freely. reason you couldn't do that. That's the whole point. Okay, but here's the additional <laughs> thing. Here's the additional thing. There's a centering graphic that they use which shows the tilt offset which they couldn't have actually put in the previous one now technically mm. probably they could have put a kind of water bubble effect in the center perhaps but what you yeah. get with this finite which is things that i've found through doing noble ape user interfaces is that if you do a general or an abstract simplification you can actually put in a lot of additional stuff which yeah. people don't typically Listen, notice i don't have anything after. against yeah. having it more abstract as opposed to reality mm. you know imitating I, I just think uh it's stupid to have a position against or either any of them carte blanche it's just each situation i think i mean i think there are some places where it would be better to imitate reality, and there are other places, like what you were just mentioning, where it makes more sense to do it a different way. Here's but, the interesting but, point. I mean, Apple yeah. has historically, and this is 1984, fundamentally, had a series of um, human interface guidelines which have basically defined the company. And I think what has happened, certainly through um, iOS, but also through the Mac interface, is that they've lost some of that element. And for me... I'm I'm in I'm in mixed views, but I think particularly because they don't hold within their own human in, interface guidelines on yeah, certain I things. Know. Yeah, yeah. But I do like it's okay. So when I was in when I was in Michigan State University last year, I was told by one of the academics actually at the end of the conference um, that they'd gotten a student to implement a website, and oh, 
students just can't implement websites, ho-hum. And I thought to myself, no. Apple, in 1984, through Inside Mac, and obviously it was done previously at Xerox Park, but it was pretty heavily perfected by Apple, created a series of interface rules which meant that any engineer, if they followed the rules, could actually create an improved user interface than just some engineer that was throwing icons and buttons all over the place. And I think that's the yeah. distinction with the Apple perspective, which ultimately companies like Microsoft have picked up to a certain extent, is yeah. that you, if you follow the interface guidelines, you can create something which is uniform, yeah. functional, or be yeah. easily picked up. It's just a practical solution. Yeah. It's not perfect, you know, and if you want to do it a different way, you can, but it'll be a lot more trouble. <laughs> well, this is, this, is the, this is the thing, is that, um, and within that, I've thought about this because I've thought about creating an iOS 7 um, iPhone-specific Noble Ape application. Because there's a lot of interesting functionality which lends itself relatively heavily to Noble Ape. Why would you go for iPhone instead of iPad? Well, the iPad is a no-brainer. The iPad, you've got enough graphics real estate. You basically, this is the um, kosher cooking versus non-kosher cooking argument. On the iPad, no-brainer. Very easy to implement. I've implemented a version of Noble Ape for the iPad. Oh, okay, so you've already since, done it. Yeah. All right, all right. Yeah, because I just it sounded to me like you were saying you, you were just going to no. do this for the iPhone. But okay, on okay. the iPhone, I think there are specific, particularly the iPhone 5, there are things that make it um, very interesting in terms of an interface for Noble Ape. So, for example, I'm not sure if you've seen my YouTube video, but Bob Bottram has created a skeletal interface for the Noble Apes currently, and he's adding blood and organs and things like that, which are based on the genetics. And also, the Noble Apes with longer legs, funnily enough, move faster, and the Noble Apes with shorter arms, funnily enough, eat slower. And there are a variety of characteristics that you actually see in the skeletons which are represented in the apes' interaction with the space as well. But there are a series of things which are fundamentally two-dimensional but informative that I think lend themselves very much to the iPhone 5 Plus. Ah. The existing 3D aspects that also lend themselves very heavily to the iPhone 5, but in a small space. And the idea is that this is, in fact, a user interface puzzle associated with how do you put all this information. Clearly, you can't put it all together. But there is probably um, an interesting set of kind of transitional elements that would be very receptive to a user that wants to interact with this environment. It's a challenge. I mean, it's a challenge associated yeah. with the space and the user interface that I've been thinking on occasionally, because I think certainly um, the experiences I had at WWDC, in particular going to a series of sessions that may not necessarily be applicable. I mean, a lot of them are applicable to what I do at Netflix, but some of the sessions were challenges that were independent of my work at Netflix. And I think that's the thing that interests me is that yes, everything in Noble Ape yeah. is there. It's all there in terms of the drawing. It's all there in terms of the computation, the graphics, what have you. It's just yeah. mapping it onto interesting yeah. and different user interfaces. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, the other thing that I found interesting with WWDC was I was there with two colleagues and nominally my manager came up for an evening and um, another manager came up for an evening as well. But it was very interesting going back into San Francisco, for the, and we had talked about this in the recording the week prior. I had to get eye drops. Um, my feet, basically, even though I have good socks and shoes, um, you know, I had blood blisters on my feet, which I found actually was... I from, mean, from walking so no, much? No, it's not. The, I can walk on even relatively uneven ground. It was um, the protracted walking both downhill and uphill. 
Ah, so, okay, yeah. So yeah, you're using your yeah. The whole system is yeah, off yeah, kilter. Yeah. What happened was that yeah. it was actually particular parts of my toes that were rubbing. Yeah, very yeah, heavily. that makes sense. Yeah, and, and it's, that's from going uphill. Yeah, well, and downhill actually. I mean, <laughs> well, downhill would put stress uh, further back in the foot, though. No, because of the think. shape, or at least on the ball. You've got. Well, I don't know. Yeah. It's an arrow-shaped thing that you're putting your anyway. So. Yeah. Um, yeah, so it was very curious to me, particularly my eye, <laughs> my eye and respiratory thing. I wasn't really aware of it. was really quite curious because all the anti-smoking legislation basically puts the smokers out on the streets, which means <laughs> you're just basically breathing their smoke continuously in a place like San Francisco. So the volume of passive smoking and the quality of kind of grit in the air and things oh. like that affect both my lungs and my eyes oh, really yeah. heavily. Yeah. It was actually quite astonishing to me. I mean, both the people I went up there with, one of them's already bought a house up there or a home up there, and the other one's considering buying a home up there. And really, honestly, I mean, I left a, I left a night early um, just because I had to get out. I mean, there were some nice things. There were some nice restaurants I went to. I went into a, a Dr. Zeus art museum, and I did various other like things with my co-workers. Um, and I met a, I met a bunch of model rail radio listeners, as I may have mentioned to you. And, you know, I mean, I think it was, it was very interesting. It was, I think something that I won't necessarily do forcibly every new WWDC. I think certainly my peers who had been to a number of them previously, aside from this one, decided to opt out. And having been there, I do appreciate that you, in terms of information, if you can devote a serious amount of time to watching the videos and the information that Apple provides, you basically get the same experience. I mean, the, the yeah. experience of being there and waiting in line, it was like they'd actually, um, they kind of outsourced. It's a show. Well, the kind of Disney yeah. Corporation mega queuing yeah. aspects yeah. of it were yeah. a little bit extreme. Oh, but that's, yeah, yeah, that's what it is. They're putting on a show for people. Well, for a particular kind of nerd. Well, yeah, 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 of course. Here's an interesting phenomenon. I could leave my bag and a variety of other things. So, for example, in the long queue, I was queuing for, what, four hours. So, uh, about, you know, two and a half hours in. Really? Standing in line? Well, for... I, uh, we were in, in, I mean, a group of us sat down. I sat down after the first two and a half hours because we clearly weren't going anywhere. Um, but yeah, we were standing in line. Sounds for like they're not very well organized. This that's is exactly shameful. my point about the Disney yeah, Corporation ridiculous. owning the queue. It was ridiculous. It was beyond ridiculous. Actually. It should be seamless and simple. You'd imagine so. But the history of this conference has huh. always had these kind of queuing things, apparently, and it's gotten worse, as I've been told. Um, but yes, it maybe, was. Maybe they think that's cool. Well, they think that's an opportunity the... for people to network. <laughs> Returning to this point, however, I was able to leave my bag and my coat in the queue at the point I was in the queue, go check the facilities, grab a drink and come back. No one had touched anything. It was perfectly... I mean, I was surrounded by people. And it was interesting, actually, because there were a series of these kind of brief interactions, particularly because they had done, like, power strips. See, now that you've said that, you know, someone's going to listen to this next year. They're going to go there and steal somebody's shit. Well, the funny thing about this is that (laughs) I was thinking about this. So another topic I wanted to raise this evening was my my phenomena associated with books. So I'm downsizing my books dramatically. I went to my storage before doing this recording. In fact, literally half an hour before starting the recording, I went back to my storage um, unit that I share with my wife and removed, I think, six boxes of books. 
of which a majority, a vast majority, are going to be donated. They won't be donated this weekend, they'll be donated next weekend. I've already donated, I think, four boxes of books. And I counted, and I still have 13 boxes of books left in the storage. And you, have you opened up, I mean, you know what's in those boxes? I, the, the funny thing is, and another, on, I think last weekend, last Sunday actually, uh, we went and did the same thing, which is why I've got two boxes ready to donate. Um, and I inhaled a vast quantity of um, pollen, which had basically collected, I guess, over the, over the spring, um, and got really heavy hay fever through this process. I know roughly what's in there, but what I'm finding is actually that a majority of what I discover through that that I'd forgotten about, I'm just going to get rid of anyway. I mean, it's a yeah, very interesting yeah. phenomenon associated well, yeah. with... And, well, it'll be fun to go through it. I mean, have you been through it? You still have to go through these boxes and I see what's actually left. there. Well, well that'll be fun. <laughs> well, it is. this is the thing I'm finding, and the plan is actually, because it costs $308 a month to do the storage, is just to get rid of the storage. Yeah. Um, and I think my wife and I are both of the same mind that this needs to occur just because... 300 a month yep. you pay for storage? It's insane. Jesus Christ. Yep. <laughs> Man. And how many cubic feet do you get? Or, or what, do you, what do you get for it's, 300 um, a month? It's normally 10 by 10 by 10. Okay. So, you know. Yeah, all right. 1,000 feet normally. Yeah, yeah. Um, and we use we use a good portion of it, but then again, we're going through it progressively. And actually, we can probably we've probably not. Can you buy a smaller that. space? Well, the theory is yes, but my concern is that the the storage company we've only had the storage for um, eighteen months, and it started at one hundred and ninety, and it's now three hundred and eight. <laughs> so my no. view is that even if we've got a smaller space, we'd still be at the women. And the funny thing is, is that they've yeah. got plenty of pits open storage. I think the reason our costs have gone up so much is because they're not making the money that they need to make through it all being full. We're yeah. actually surrounded by spaces that aren't full currently, which yeah. makes me think I've just got to get out of the storage game and donate yeah, yeah, what I need yeah. To Why do you? Yeah, if you're not using it, if it's well, stored, we are, we are you can probably it. do without it. Exactly. Well, the, you'll yeah. get the stuff that yeah. you're going to use, and yeah, and get rid of the rest. Yeah. And it is actually very liberating. So, for example, I have a series which I found this evening. I'm not. I'm yet to go through all the boxes that we pulled, but of the boxes that I did open, I found a series of the books that I read when we first started talking, maybe two plus years ago, associated with um, uh, b both the insurgency in Iraq and Afghanistan and also the US military's response to that. Now, I do have one book here associated with uh, special forces in Iraq, which I am keeping. It's a hardcover book that shows just these surreally alien um, American special forces um, uniforms, like literally the body armor and the stuff that they wear, they look very, very bizarre. They look like alien creatures. And yeah, these are the people right, that, yeah. you know, historically through the Iraq. Just like in the movies. Exactly. We're, we're, you know, busting down doors and what have you. I'm going to keep that book because it was a relatively rare. Well, if book. I was doing that, that's what I'd want. <laughs> yes. I mean, like, you see no, these you the way. Well, just look you at the way city police dressed are you now. You, you know, in riot situations, you don't want to be putting your physical body into any of this environment. You want a drone. Well, yeah, that's even better. But, but I mean, as long as you're going to have to put people in there, man, I want to have heavy body armor on. Shit, we're not playing football here. Well, yes, I mean, I think you know. I mean, anyway, 
So, but the books that I am getting rid of are the books that I've already read associated with the Taliban, associated with um, the Iraq insurgency, the history. I've got um, Al-Zakawi books that are easy to get rid of now. The one that I've kept is associated with Abu Nadal, because I think Abu Nadal is just a fascinating uh, character. Um, And I'm debating, so I'm getting down to that level of granularity of books that I've read previously that really enjoyed and will probably reread. Do I need to get rid of these now? Will they become electronic books? What will happen? But um, in the vast majority, there are some children's books which I think I'm just going to take a photo of the cover, like children's books that I had as a child. Um, and then if I think about it in the future, ABE books is very good. <laughs> you know, it's funny that you say it because I am still dragging around a few books that I had as a child. <laughs> uh, you know, not many. I was like five or six, I guess. Yes. But uh, and uh, but I keep, you know, I, I've never even seriously considered getting rid of those. But actually, <laughs> you know. the thing that I found, and I've actually done this, is that, um, <laughs> is that the, the copies I have aren't particularly good copies. Like, I have a couple of children's books, which were seminal children's books to me, where the front or back cover's been removed, they've been heavily chewed on, probably by me oh, and my yeah. brothers, um, they've yeah. got pages taped in, pages that have been torn out where my mother has yeah. written the story back in on different bits of paper. These are the exact I guess books. I was a better-behaved child. Mine looked pretty good. <laughs> yeah, you, well, <laughs> who knows? I mean, did you have to read your books with tweezers? I don't know how you interacted with your books. But- I, I don't remember, actually. I, you know, I don't have any connection with any of them. They're just there. I don't remember reading them <laughs> or so ever looking at them. They may not even be my books. Yes. Who knows? Maybe I just found them somewhere. Yeah, some of my brother's books got into my books when yeah, when they were shipped, and it was a very curious thing. <laughs> my view, however, is that um, I can buy old copies of these books in better quality now for pennies on the dollar. Um, yeah, and it's probably better that I just give these books a uh, nice. And then, grade. if you think about it, uh, exactly. you, who the hell cares, really? Yes, yes, it should be. You should have an ebook of it, though. See, that's the thing: is it ought to be available electronically. Mm. That way, again, everything. It seems to me that any time we lose something, that is a loss, and that there's just no reason for that. Everything ought to be available. Hmm. I, I, I mean, the advantage. I mean, the alternative is that it's not available. So I, I currently, <laughs> you know? I currently have four books associated with the AK forty-seven, the the machine, well, whatever you call it, assault rifle, what yeah. have you. I've I play a game where I will go through each of the books and I will say this is of the this book, and I have a number of books. The Battle of Britain is a good example. I have I had um, maybe a dozen books associated with the Battle of Britain. And I went through and I said, this is, out of all of them, this is the definitive book. This is the book that I'm going to keep. I have the most sentimental value. It's the best account of the Battle and of Britain. And, you know, I don't have anything. I don't even have one book about the Battle of Britain. How, what is wrong with me? <laughs> well, this is, and you've just got to get the definitive version of it. But you then, can't live without but here's, here's, the, here's the interesting <laughs> point, though, Heron. Within your topics of interest, yeah. you have your own books. And it just so happens the Battle of yeah. Britain, for a series of reasons, including the fact that my um, grandmother was part of the um, uh, communications network, and, uh, as was this physicist whose name I can't remember. Um, and um, so there are 
there are a series of connections that I have, but I also think it's actually an important, it's important for a number of reasons. I mean, I don't need to get into them, but you similarly have books that are important to you for a number of reasons. Well, you know, actually, when I look at them here, I'm looking at what's left of my book collection, and frankly, you know, except from the stuff I wrote myself, my journals and things, (laughs) But but actually, even those, I mean, really, I mean, if, if I was forced uh, to become a refugee and I had to get out of here, uh, I could leave all that shit. I mean, as long as I got my iPad, I think most of most of what I want is on that. And then, and if I lost the other stuff, if that was that, well, I've already read it. <laughs> you know, so yeah, I just don't have. I've I've lost that love for physical books. I don't have any attachment, except for like I say, my own journal notes. I mean, I all have you know fourteen thousand physical pages here, but that's all been scanned. So again, if I lost that, it's not that big a deal, really. Well, at least that's the way I think about it. I think the. I mean, certainly, uh, the Battle of Britain is a good example. The reading and also the documentaries and the information that I found around the Battle of Britain, the definitive book that I kept, has a lot of additional information that I haven't been able to gather and subtleties. Do you have a plan on writing another book about about the Battle Battle of Britain? Britain? (laughs) It's it's a space that I could see myself writing Uh, fiction. Ah, that would make sense. And I think the other thing that interests me about the Battle of Britain is that it's an archetype that is represented in a number of other conflicts that I would like to include in my writing in the future. Because it's an interesting kind of seminal point of a number of layers of technology, but also human networks. I mean, the thing about the Battle of Britain that's particularly fascinating is the many layers of humans in the endeavour. It was not a conflict where you had a whole lot of people in trenches it was a conflict where you had a wide variety of ground support you had radar when an introduction of radar which kind of created a series of very interesting phenomena both in terms of changes of flight patterns and a wide variety of other things you also had relative i i should also state maybe this just falls into the um psychotic nature of my obsession with this i have actually built out of balsa wood uh, Spitfire previously. I've built actually a number of Spitfires through my time, through my early, my misspent youth. Um, but most recently, when I was in the UK, um, I built a small, you know, radio controlled Spitfire through open source plans, might I add. Um, and I do have a sense that these elements of history are important to remember. I've had an interesting experience actually recently as well. One of the Kickstarters that I put money into came to fruition, and I got a game called The Guns of Gettysburg, which I've put together. And I really have an interesting kind of relationship with the Civil War, in terms of it being a kind of cute... The American Civil War, the English Civil War, I have slightly more interest in. But it just seems really quite surreal, the American Civil War, because it was one of the first kind of mass carnage, relatively modern weaponry wars, where they thought that they were still fighting early on um, a kind of, you know, war of independence yeah. kind of struggle. One yeah. of the things I got, this Kickstarter bonus was a Civil War bullet, uh, yeah. which had been dug out of the ground and presented to me <laughs> in a kind of dusty bag, which was really curious to hold this thing in your hand and realise that this was a projectile that was fired at humans. 
And it's pretty hefty. I mean, it could have done some serious damage. I said this to my wife, and then she said, never say something like that again. It's just too morbid. But, um, yeah, it is interesting the way these things um, come up. And I have a few books on the um, American Civil War, in large part, actually, about the Confederacy, because I think that's actually the really strange... I kind of understand the Union, fundamentally. But the Confederacy and the texture of the Confederacy, we have a listener, a model rail radio listener, who may even listen to Stone Ape, who uh, tracks his lineage back to uh, Confederate general. And it is really very curious, the people that still live in the Confederacy. (laughs) Well, nationalism, again, is one of our big problems. (laughs) Yes. But nationalism in the Civil War is a very curious thing. Well... Yeah, well, cure, you know, it's just stand, standard language monkey behavior. There, we said it. Mm. <laughs> yes, I think it's something... You know, is my group and your group. But within that, you have the strange... I mean, in the English Civil War, it was far more likely that brothers would be in opposing sides. In the US, at least, it had some... Geographical. geography, yeah, yeah right, a geographical yeah. aspect. Yeah, too. well, every, every, I guess every human stupidity is has its own unique aspects. Yeah, the English Civil <laughs> War, because of that aspect of just. See, the, I know I have no idea what you're even talking about. That's how well educated I am. When you say the English Civil War, so I'm English thinking, you know, War is this is 1300 between, or uh, in 1880 or no? Was, this must have been a long time ago. I want to say 16. I want to say 1683, but I'm probably okay. Quite all right, wrong. It, 1683. It involved gunpowder there were uh, there was gunpowder but it was between the king and the parliament if you believe that there was a lot of additional kind of land aristocracy yeah. elements yeah. in there as well but it was one of these curious either or things where really i i mean on some level i kind of prefer the the ideas of the parliament but when you actually look at what the parliament was standing for it was actually quite fascist and the king was kind of you know yeah, <laughs> so it was one of these curious things where I don't think in, in my modern psychology. Well, you can't, that, this is why you can't have these abstract rules about who's right and who's wrong. You have to consider every situation in its uniqueness. But it was very much a. It was one of these curious dividing points, which still put brother against brother. In, yeah, and it had. It was you're the, either for the king or you were for the parliament. Exactly. Yeah, and the interesting thing is the. From this, after a series of, you know, futile skirmishes, the Parliament decided to adopt what they called the New Model Army, which is very much the modern style of warfare, where you have, you know, you have kind of units of troops and they move semi-autonomously and you don't have them kind of lining up all in a row to be shot. (laughs) And, you know, all these kind of relatively... And you have basically the beginning of organised guerrilla warfare that pretty well exists to this day. And, I mean, it really was very fascinating that... um, they had, yeah, know, that was all new idea. Yeah, before that, yeah, they just line up and start. Well, before that, they took swords and spears and hacked each other up. Well, there were that sounds like fun. There were swords and spears <laughs> in the English Civil War as well. I mean, the nature of the firearms was yeah, still very yeah. primitive. Um, but yes, it is one of these curious conflicts that I had an, a natural <laughs> aversion to until I actually started reading more about it. And particularly being in the UK, I had a period of time where I was reading. And funnily enough, this is one of the few experiences that I shared with my father. And my Cromwell was um, one of the uh, generals for Parliament. 
And my father and I talked about Cromwell to the point that he joined the Cromwell Society, and some of the books he sent me were actually the quarterly Cromwell Review. There are Cromwell scholars in the UK that are obsessive about Cromwell and there's a society associated with that. <laughs> Funnily enough, in the toy soldier community, one of the sculptors that I followed blew his arm off in a uh, reenactment accident. <laughs> Uh, so people still reenact it as they do with the American well, Civil War. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Poor people just have no. They got to find something to latch on to, or well, or they're just fucking empty. I much rather them, you know, firing makeshift gunpowder at each other than playing organized sports on some level. But maybe you and I disagree in this regard. I mean, no, no I think- I'm just talking about people. People apparently need meaning, meaning in their lives, and uh, and they. And they come up with something. Well, I mean, you're true. And, and then they focus on. Thing. I mean, it's not any different than what I do. I mean, yeah. it's, it's just. <laughs> it strikes me that of all the possibilities of things that people could get involved with and commit their lives to, reenacting Civil War battlefield strikes me as perverse. Oh. You know, uh, maybe in a world that didn't wasn't as fucked up as this. Yeah, that. Or I shouldn't say in itself it's not perverse. If if they are also doing something that uh, contributes to creating a new world, then fine. I got no problem with what else they do. But if, if that's what they find meaning for in their life and, they, and that's it, and they, they go to work and they come home and they polish their weapons and go out and do their reenactments and that satisfies their creative life, then, yeah, I, I pity that. But here's an interesting phenomenon. I think a majority of the people that do these reenactments on some fundamental level appreciate that what they are doing in their reenacting is also an enforcement that history shouldn't repeat itself. It's not that they are characteristically all pacifist, but it is a sense that through reenacting history, they can have an important connection with the sense of futile hopelessness. Of the, of the <laughs> really yeah. so, well, you may be closer to that than I. I mean, I'm l- reading this from afar. <laughs> yes, I mean, I tr- truth be told, I mean, this is my whole kind of historical legacy upbringing at all. I think probably my parents would be of the mindset that this was all very. But then again, you know, my father took me to a wargaming convention when I was seven or eight. And we wandered around, and this all looked very interesting to me. It looked less interesting to him, and these kind of yeah. things. So, I mean, my view is that um, I guess this is this is part of this whimsy thing that you've been trying to uh, tell me is not necessarily appropriate in our old my Well, not, not no, it's not no, it's that's not what I want to say. Actually, uh, it's just my experience with some people like that is that that's all there is to mm. them. Uh, and like I say, I I like sumo wrestling. Mm. I followed that very closely for mm. years, uh, you know. But I've got there's an I've got enough room to save the planet and be interested in sumo. Yeah, there are a but, number. Of- but if sumo was the only thing I did, yeah, then I would say, "Fuck you," <laughs> you know. That, that's fine. That's that's what a language monkey does. They find something to keep to occupy themselves, yeah. uh, while the whole fucking world is being created <laughs> right yeah, around I, us. I think it's an interesting. I mean, certainly, certainly, the model rail fraternity. There is a subset that do this reenactment, and I think the thing that interests me within 
So within the model rail community, it's actually... So, for example, there's a fellow in Seattle who's a cancer doctor who also is building a layout with his son as well. Um, and there are a series of polymaths. I mean, Peter Stimple, for example, who listens to this show, um, and also Model Rail Radio. I mean, I see a series of polymaths that if you use that attribution, which you have occasionally for Model Rail folk, I could easily find a number of interesting characters that I've met through yeah. the Model Rail yeah, Radio. Yeah, and I've got no problem with yeah. those people at all. <laughs> what, I, what I'm doing is sort of making up a fiction of my imagination of who those people are. Mm. And there's people who have nothing but that. Mm. And and I like I say I I think that's kind of sad. I think that's somebody trying to uh, find something to give their life meaning when actually <laughs> there are so many things to give your life meaning that are that are important to all of us. You know, we need you. But are they? <laughs> you know, are they you can still to- do model railroad. Just give us two hours a week. <laughs> to save the planet, and then the rest you can do your model railroads. <laughs> well, it's interesting because I think there's certainly a segment of the of the population that would do things that are, relatively speaking, saving things locally in their area. I mean, it, it, although you can have a genuine intellectual yeah. discussion associated with cancer treatment, and yeah. someone who is a cancer doctor is doing something on some level that is assisting some group in of some people. way, yeah. Yeah. Well, it, you can't – again, you can't – I don't think – I certainly can't make any blanket judgments of people in the abstract. Yeah. These are just abstractions I'm throwing out. Any real human being uh, needs to be evaluated <laughs> – well, it doesn't need to be evaluated, but it, I will. And that and that's always an individual with all you – know, you know, you just – most of the people I end up meeting, I more or less like. It, it's just – I don't know – well, never mind. I, I don't know what to say about that. But individuals are okay. It's just the <laughs> individuals. They are okay. Keep well, sometimes those puppy videos here, and this is pro- progress. And <laughs> puppy videos, and I can tolerate normal human beings on it. Well, see, but I can. That's it. It's, it's easy for me to tolerate them because I only do it on my schedule. You know, I don't have to put up with people except under certain circumstances, and I usually prepare for it. I found out that I'm I'm not drinking nearly enough wine. Oh. The av- the average uh wine drinker according to the psycholog- the psychiatrist at uh the Veterans Administration uh told me that 14 glasses a week is average for people who drink. I mean, I guess for people who don't drink that aren't counted in that, but people who do drink uh, and, and drink wine drink on the average 14 glasses per week, which I thought was amazing. That seems like an awful lot. That is, um, that's the definition of alcoholism in the literature I've read. Yeah, that would well, be two glasses a night. Exactly. And I, I don't think that's, I'd say it's certainly a habit. I, I don't know if it's, <laughs> Well, I mean, I, two glasses a night. I don't. It, I can. I can't even feel two glasses. You know, it, it, maybe I'm an alcoholic. <laughs> it, it is an interesting point because I mean, this, these statistics come from what I've read, and also what my mother. My mother drinks comfortably at least two glasses a night. Yeah. Um, and yeah. The question is, can you function? Do you work in the world? Yes. Well, is <laughs> yeah. I mean, is yeah. Is that the question, or is the Kind of broader toxicology, gout, um, effects on your face, effects on your m- mind over long periods of time, 
do you require the two glasses in order to face the next day? I mean, these kind of things. Yeah, yeah. There's all more, sorts of other things. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, but again, it, it maybe well, you could say there. We do you really require LSD to see God? Well, yeah, but mm. given the alternative, let's do it. Mm. <laughs> you know? Yeah, maybe you do need the drug to get that done. Is getting that done worthwhile enough to to use the drug? If coffee, I mean, maybe it would be better theoretically to not need coffee or wine. Hmm. On the other hand, I find wine very helpful if I have to be among a bunch of humans at a party. Yes. You know, a couple glasses of wine, and I actually can have a good time. So, (laughs) when I was in San Francisco, I started drinking non-alcoholic beer, which I'd never drunk previously, just as an experiment. Mm -hmm. And what I found was that I drink, as I did with real beer, I drink a vast quantity of non-alcoholic beer when I have it offered to me. And um, I'm starting to realize that perhaps I shouldn't drink even non-alcoholic beer, although this was only a week-plus experiment, although I've bought two cases since I've gone back. But I think um, clearly... You like the taste of beer. Oh, yeah. See, I, I never have understood that. that to me, I, I just, you know, I drink alcohol. I don't like alcohol, really. I yeah. drink alcohol to get drunk if I'm going to drink, except for this stuff. I actually like the way this tastes. So. Yeah, no, I drink... I mean, what what it showed to me, which I already knew when I used to drink, was that I drink volumes of alcohol very quickly because, in part, I I also like the refreshing properties, but Mm -hmm. really it takes a lot of alcohol to have an effect on me. Yeah. Wait wait a minute. Let me ask you, why not drink something like Coke or Pepsi or 7-Up as opposed to beer? I mean, so it, it, th- this is interesting. The, um, this in large part actually relates to when I started drinking beer. My, I mean, I come from a culture where drinking beer is uh, not just a male uh, rite of passage, but yeah. basically, and from early childhood, beer disgusted <laughs> me um, yeah. in terms of the taste. So I realized yes, of course, only, any, any normal mammal would. <laughs> the only way I could get into it was to do hard labor, and I used to mow lawns. And in the heat of in the Australian summer, because I had to mow lawns through the summer, there was no, this is summer, you don't have to mow the lawn. This was, in fact, the period of time where I had to mow most of the lawns. I would get extremely exhausted and extremely hot, and I would drink beer in those circumstances. In fact, this actually led to a programming. Which and not, I mean, I was, but wait a minute again. You would rather drink beer than to drink a Coke or a Pepsi or a 7-Up in those situations. The nature, well, both Coke and Pepsi and 7-Up are salty. Um, to a certain extent, beer is salty as well, but it's a different kind of consistency. And the kinds of beers that I typically would drink, particularly in Australia, were more of the kind of Pilsner line so they were relatively light but they had a kind of sharp taste to them um and it is interesting i do find Mm. beer genuinely refreshing this is what i found with the alcohol free beer um but i found myself and i realized that when i used to drink regular beer non more alcohol beer um i would drink to a similar pace i mean i my phenomena on a friday evening well typically sometimes we would begin at lunchtime in australia um, and when I moved to the UK, you know, I would have three pint lunches, basically, on a Friday. I mean, that was the agreed-upon <laughs> day that yeah. was done. And I could function quite comfortably in these circumstances. Yeah. But yeah. It, the thing that struck me was that it was just a a ridiculous phenomenon. It's been ten years since I stopped drinking. Um, and 
going back to alcohol-free beer made me realise that I probably shouldn't even drink that because when I drink it around people who drink alcohol, they get the sense that I... which was the way I used to drink. That, you know, this is uh, a phenomena. Um, and I think it was a, a strange circumstance because I realised that I really do like the taste of beer on some quite yeah. fundamental yeah. level. And I do find it distinctly refreshing, distinct from, as you say, the thing that I find frustrating about, I now only drink caffeine-free diet cola, and we have a soda stream here, so I don't even drink the can variety, I drink the Israeli soda stream stuff, is that um, I, you know, I can quite comfortably drink a lot of it, but it gives me a very different, the thickness of beer actually is a cooling thing to me. It, it, it is a different experience than drinking even an ice cold See, I don't beverage. even think you can really articulate this. You know, I mean, this is something that is not really in the domain of language. And it may be, you know, again, that I, certain things I like and other things I don't like the taste of. Why? Because of the total complexity of my life and my interactions with food and other people exactly. and yeah. all of that. Yeah. There's no way to articulate that. It's unique to each of us. Exactly. And in, yeah. in returning to stories like mowing a lot of lawns and then drinking beer and these kind of things, yeah. there is, in fact, far more experiences where I've been yeah. in stressful, high-stress And how situations. old were you at this time when you were 15. mowing lawns and drinking beer? See, that was just unthinkable in the United States. I yeah, mean, exactly. At 15-year-old, you drink Cokes. Yeah. You know, there, there is no beer culture like that. I yeah. mean, yeah. Yeah. With the view that I knew before even I was of legal drinking age, I mean, I guess I started drinking socially when I was maybe 16, which is about the age, and my mother was a diplomat, so I was drinking high-quality vodka with Russian diplomats when I was 16, um, and these kind of things, which is a very different... Have you ever drunk, like, really good-quality vodka? Um... Well, Stoli, I don't know. No, if that's, no, no. These these uh, don't even have yeah. these. These are like with don't even seals and yeah. You know, no, I don't. No. I, anyway, I it is a phenomenon. It still tastes like alcohol. No, it doesn't. No, it doesn't. Oh, okay. Well, I they never refrigerated, and um, it's what like, does it taste like? It's um, it has uh, maybe a very not like slight, anything you can yeah, say. Yeah, it's very difficult to. <laughs> it has elements of almost like. So where can water. I get some of this to taste? You, it's very difficult to actually find in the U.S. You need to find areas where there are large densities of Russians that you probably have in um, in, in Southern California. Area. Uh, yeah. And then you go into very particular, I guess, bottle shops that are run by these Russians, and then they're probably behind glass cases or what have you. The phenomenon they're probably was, very expensive. Yes, right now. and three hundred dollars a bottle typically. Okay, so it's not things. really all that important to me. No, no, no. I, <laughs> never mind. The distinction is that it was very much like you—you you had a kind of strange kind of dilation of space when you drank it. It was a very different kind of alcohol effect than you would get through drinking. So stolen. it's a drug. Yes, oh, very much. This is a drug, yeah. and it's a drug that has some alcohol in it, but it may have some other ingredients, <laughs> or or something reconfigured that makes it operate differently than other alcohols. Yeah, the the, the movement, um, particularly methyl and butyl alcohol in these alcohols, is very interesting. In fact, what you find in the distinction between really cheap beer, which I found in Malaysia, and reasonable beer, is actually the amount of um, methyl and butyl alcohol that is in with the ethanol. And yeah, it is very interesting, actually, um, the distinctions within you know standard alcohol associated with these. Yeah, and every one, well, and every alcohol is going to have a different impact psychologically too. Mm. 
You know, I, I'm a happy drunk, mm. but I know people who want to fight when they get drunk. You know, I mean, it's just like it's amazing. Mm. You, the the well, you you must be well aware of that coming from Australia. Yes, I'm. I'm <laughs> actually. It's interesting because I I've had a series of situations following drinking where I think my response was different than clearly if I had been sober. And a few of these experiences have kind of stuck with me. But the main ones are where I am in points of confrontation with people that have been drinking heavily as well. Oh, yeah. yes. Yeah. It's those these, other damn yes. language monkeys. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, I know. But then, it's tough. Then it leaves you drinking in isolation when it in itself has a, a stigma associated yeah. with it. But well, I, for me, the only time I drank was really at parties and stuff. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, or, or gatherings where other people were drinking. And, you know, normally I'm really pretty standoffish and intellectual. But if I get good and drunk, man, I just love everybody. I hug people, mm. you know, I, I dance, you know, I, I just, I'm just one of those really sloppy, lovable drunks. <laughs> It it's great, really. I enjoy it. You yeah. know, I think probably it's a little obnoxious to some people, but well, God, I, I think it's fun. An African American <laughs> in certain circumstances. Well, yeah, in some cases, yeah, you you get a little too comfortable. Yeah, it is interesting because I had friends in Australia that needed to drink around <laughs> me, and I think it's a phenomenon that um, that yeah, I, I that's the only way they could tolerate you yes, is if they exactly. were exactly. Oh, no, and more importantly, some would say that I was far better drunk than I was sober because sober I created these kind of, you know, confusing, deep views, but drunk I just cut yeah, through right. all no, the you just had, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, that would make sense. Yeah, you'd be a lot more popular drunk. Yes. But, yeah, having, having, I guess, gone through a decade of sobriety, it is an interesting phenomena just having a – a non-alcohol-based but flavor-based yeah. insight into that kind of window, and also just realizing that the capacity that I had in terms of drinking beer primarily is something that is still very implicit in you know yeah. whatever. See, I never liked the taste of beer. The mm. only reason I in college when I started drinking, we drank beer all the time, you know. But I mean, it was just to get drunk. That was the whole point. I mean, if it didn't get get drunk, I sure as hell wouldn't have drunk it. But the thing that fascinated me early on, which I guess is associated with vodka, I would drink a wide variety of different kinds of beer. In fact, my cousin, um, while going through his engineering degree, worked in a um, what they call a bottle in Australia, an alcohol vendor, a seller of alcohol. And I, even though I, I could still tell him from the various beers, you know, the hops and the various flavours and these kind of things, when I was... Um, in university, my first few, in fact, actually my all the years of university, I had a ritual on a Friday night when I wasn't dating or seeing people or what have you, where I would go and buy beers um, in a, in the, sh- well, what I'd do is I'd rent videos in one store and then I'd go and buy beers in the next store and I'd rent foreign language movies and I'd buy beers from the countries where the movies came from. <laughs> which was an interesting phenomenon. So I would get Italian and French. And so I actually know beers, and it's a strange kind of time and place thing because I know them based on consuming them while watching the films. <laughs> I love it. That's great. See, this is called creating reality. Or, yeah, yeah fundamentally changing reality. Well, no, it's creating it. Well, it's programming. It's, it's, it's programming in some well, that's, that's sense. But that's the, the impulse to do it, though. I mean, is this is to find meaning and instantiate it and turn it into something real. 
Yes. We're real here is remembering a decade and a half ago, a series of flavors associated. Well, yeah, real is, yeah, that's a pretty <laughs> tricky term there. I should apologize. Excuse me. I'm the last guy that I should be using that word. Yes. Anyway, so I think I'll probably uh, go back to my water and uh, soda stream caffeine-free diet coke occasionally and yeah, maybe on a very rare occasion when I'm forced to in a bar situation have a non-alcoholic beer or two. But yeah, so that was an interesting, an interesting kind of. It's easier to just cut it all out. You're exactly, right. which is what it's I've just, done. It's just it's much simpler. Yeah, yeah than, than trying to figure out what's okay and what's not okay. And yeah, that's yeah. yeah. So, yeah, to me, uh, the only time I drink alcohol is either when I'm talking to you or <laughs> if I'm wa- walking, uh, watching a movie. Yeah. And I watch maybe one movie every two weeks or so, and I talk to you once a week, and that's it. It is interesting, actually, because you probably fit into, although you may be drinking for other reasons, but you would fit into my category of friends who drink with <laughs> in order perhaps to like soften some of the edges or something ah, like that. No, but the thing is, you know, actually, yeah, I don't, I mean, I obviously this does have some influence on me, but it doesn't feel like much, I'll tell you. Hmm. I just like it because it tastes good. It's, you know, it, it's part of really an oral fixation. It's more about that, mm. you know, because I don't eat anything after six o'clock. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's something to do with my mouth. <laughs> it's an excuse to consume something that's not just water. That would be another way to look at it. <laughs> so, something but I'd you- say it's not bad. I mean, I, I think I'm, I'm containing it well. Yeah, I'm. I'm yeah, I mean, aside from. Aside from when you get to uh, the rascal language monkey scum after about nine or ten glasses, I think. Is that how many I had that night? I think so. Nine or ten? Yeah. It was a competitive. Yeah. It was a competitive. I run. thought I was doing pretty good, actually. The phenomena which I've described to my wife following, and she hasn't listened to the evidence, but when you when you um, you know have a toke on your pipe. It did actually. You you improved. You sparked up. It was an interesting kind of two chemical uh, experiment. Well, I'll have to listen to those myself. Which you know which number that is? Yeah, it's called. It's called Rascal Language Monkey Scum, and it goes on for five plus hours. So I mean, yeah, that one. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I should listen to it. I could probably learn something from listening to it, but I I probably won't. Yeah, my view is you won't. Moving on. Something Damn, to- well, I got you to, to listen. I got all these other people out here. If there's something I need to know in there, yeah. let me know, please. You guys know more about this than I do. When you eat ice cream, Heron, what mm-hmm. kind of ice cream do you eat? Uh, <laughs> you know, I don't think I'm – well, no, I can still eat ice cream. I'm just not doing it these days. Okay, I thought uh, you still occasionally ate ice cream. No, well, if I get around to it, I will. I mean, I don't have any rule against it, but I, I, I've really sort of simplified my my whole dietary regimen, you know, recently. So, uh, anyway, there's no rule against it. I uh, like good vanilla ice cream with uh, frozen raspberries thawed out and uh, poured on top of it. Mm. You know, that's actually in my uh, in my birth town of Adelaide. You can actually buy that in ice cream form. Now, they puree the raspberries, and they put it through yeah. the vanilla ice cream. 
But that yeah. is actually an ice cream. Yeah, flavor. no, but I, I like them both. Yeah, it's not about that. It's about the textures too. I understand. You know, and, and, uh, and the syrup that comes out of the, the frozen raspberries. But that's exactly uh, the phenomena in the yeah. South Australian ice cream. Yeah. Um, yeah. It is very interesting. Yeah, 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 that's great. I love that. And and good chocolate chip, if you can find it. And the, the thrifty drugstores, actually, well, I haven't bought any of their chocolate chip in years, but mm. they used to have really good chocolate chip ice cream. Yeah, my thrifty wife and my in-laws would do exactly the same thing and and liked thrifties too. I mean, they are they're cut from the same cloth that you are fundamentally. Yeah, yeah, they were good. I mean, they, and their strawberry ice cream was good too. I mean, mm. it, it was quite satisfying. You yes. know? No, I, I don't I know like if that's still true. Thrifties, um, we went there in two thousand to try and find the ice cream. It's changed. The thrifties store. I think has been bought up by another store now. Oh, I'm sure, yeah. And, but tank. I think you can still get the ice cream, which is still originally branded, or as of 2000, still originally branded Thrifties. I think that was 13 years ago. Yeah. 2000, you're saying? Actually, no, 2005. <laughs> 2005 was when we did it. So, mm-hmm. yeah, still a long time it's ago. Still, still a long time ago, yeah. <laughs> well, um, you know, it won't kill me if it's not there. I haven't had the need to go get it. Mm. Uh, because actually, I really prefer now over the last few years is to get just good uh, premium vanilla ice cream mm. and uh, and the the frozen raspberries or frozen strawberries, mm. either one. That's great. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I, say, I just um, I've been eating a lot of ber- just plain berries actually lately. Certainly, certainly. Yeah, that's one of the beautiful things about this culture is that I can get, you know, my berries from Mexico and South America at a relatively reasonable price. Mm. You know, they have to fly those things up here, and uh, you know, it's amazing. But uh, God, they're so good. <laughs> so I have I have two topics remaining, and we are a little bit time limited this evening because tomorrow, as we seem to do twice a year, we are doing a tour of. Actually, we're doing the up till kind of halfway up the bay, um, down to uh, Monterey, the quilt shop tour, of which there's also a North Bay tour that we do on the other part of the year. Um, but yeah, so this is a an annual. Well, so this, how much more time do we have? Uh, probably about half an hour, I think. So this is this wasn't even one of the two topics. It's just a brief update associated with the comic book project. But I think we discussed in our last recording what was actually occurring associated with, you know, working with this, um, you know, 25-year-old artist in Italy. What's her name again? Anita. Anita, okay. Yes. Um, And she's actually stepped up to the plate. I mean, basically what I did was double her workload and paid her half in advance and said, rather than taking five weeks to do this, we need to do this in a couple of weeks. And she's done that actually very well, and she's been very receptive to it. So oh, cool! Think, good. Yeah, good. exactly. So I mean, my yeah. view is that this is a very sometimes thing. things actually work. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah. My view is more often than not, you'd hope that they did, even if they don't. So <laughs> now this is actually a very positive sign, and I think things are going to uh, continue well. And she's certainly very receptive. <laughs> you still don't talk to her. I think that's, that's. I mean, my she's she's kind of semi-active on Facebook. And I think that would probably be the next step. But a lot uh-huh. of her stuff on Facebook is kind of 
you know, artistic explorations of sexuality and things like that. So I think perhaps I'll keep that at arm's length and just continue actually. Once we've got a function, yeah. Well, if it's working, if you're happy, if you're yeah, if you're happy, just you know, be careful about what changes. Amen. So, of the two topics, um, I'll I'll put this one first. so last year I attended an artificial life conference and walked away from it feeling rather flattened, uh, both emotionally and also intellectually. And one of the fellows I met there uh, has invited me to be on the program committee of the next conference, which is going to be held in New York City next year. And I said to him very candidly in correspondence, I hope this isn't going to be anything like the last one. And he said very candidly in correspondence, and I didn't say that explicitly to him, this is going to be nothing like the last one. The last one sucked. <laughs> and, um, Great, okay. Good start. <laughs> so I said to him in very candidly in correspondence, who else is going to be on the program committee? I, I know who made the last conference suck, and if they're involved with this one, it's going to suck again. Yeah. And he said he'd get back to me within the next week associated with that. The first thing I did, however... Was, and how long ago was that? Has he gotten back to you yet? No, no, it's going to be next week. This is literally today we've had this conference. Oh, okay, all right. So he's um, got seven days to... Uh, yeah. We'll see if he keeps yeah. his work. Well, what interests me is that I can actually invite people that I know that are doing interesting stuff to participate in this conference. Yeah. And this is a very different phenomena than has occurred. This is a conference life. for what? Artificial, artificial life? life. This okay. is the artificial life conference. Well, and this is the heart of Noble Ape. Well, no, this is what's interested me what? because last year when I attended the conference, I thought that that's what Noble Ape was. And I came away from that conference thinking if this is artificial life, this isn't what Noble Ape is. Well, well, well you can, well, in your definition of artificial life. Yes, then. I can now, I yeah. can now actually, I can now actually do some um, heavily uh, reconstructive efforts in this light. Um, yeah. And yeah. what I'm interested in doing is actually getting a wide variety of folk to attend this conference and really um, not necessarily shake things up, but show people where things are currently and where they need to move their views to potentially or at least what what do you think a lot of the people that go to these things are just stuck in some ideas that made sense 20 years ago or something or Um, really okay i mean that's not surprising but it's it's a little sad Yeah, yeah we, we are simpatico in this view here. I mean, potentially. Um, really? What the hell? See, well, it's just those fucking language monkeys. Even, even just because you're educated and intelligent doesn't mean you're not totally an unconscious language monkey. In fact, you're probably more likely to be in, in your fact, own particular area. Yeah, you're yeah. right. Well, yeah. They're, well, they're, you found your comfort I don't think that's it. It's really, it's really they're totally independent of each other. You're going to find people who are waking up in all in the most unlikely yeah, places. Look, I mean, look, there's a reason I'm not an academic, and a large part of it is because what? of my Meaning? father's experience. And there's a reason you're not an academic. It's because of a series of experiences that we have had, or we have had told yeah. to us, that seem to indicate that there are a number of paradoxes in trying to create a kind of visionary intellectual movement well, and being stuck yeah, within this yeah, political yeah. system. What I got, when I finally... The thing that broke it for me was realizing that, in one instance, what I realized these academics were good at was finding reasons why you can't do something. Um, You know, they're really good. They can come up with a million reasons why this won't work or that won't work or anything else won't work. And they're really good at that. (laughs) Meanwhile, as I have done... (laughs) 
Yeah. I do everything that they say isn't possible. You just go do it. Right. Yeah. yeah. Right. Yeah. It's philosophical satire, fundamentally, not science. Yes. So yeah, it is. A, it is going to be an interesting um, experience. Oh, this is going to be fun. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, how many people will be on? You're going to be. You've invited to be what? The, well, I'm I'm on the program committee, which means the that the program. Normally, so the yeah. group of people who are going to do, make up the agenda for the conference. Oh man. Oh, great. So now you're right. Now it depends on who the other people are. Yes. Uh, and uh, I mean, my- well, actually, it doesn't make any difference. You can still go. And if they're all stacked against you, you can just be a thorn in everybody's side and have a ball. No, you know? my view is that I can actually throw cards on the table. And if they just reject all the cards on the table that yeah. I throw, yeah. then yeah. it's a different it's thing. Not a, it's, yeah, yeah, it's not but, your problem. All you can do is go and do what you can do. Yeah. That's right. So, exactly. So, my view so is yeah, so it would be good to do it anyway, no matter who the other exactly. people are. Yeah. Good, if, I agree. If, yeah. if nothing more, to have that learning experience. Because yeah, you'll my, learn a lot. Yeah, yes. my view is that this is a point where yeah. I need to have a learning experience. Oh yeah, that's it. yeah, that'll be awesome. That'll so, be fun. Potentially, so. yeah, I'm actually remarkably optimistic. You it's can't. Like, well, you can't lose. <laughs> well, you can. No, there's no energy, way. Well, energy-wise, you can lose. I mean, energy-wise, if you are constantly stonewalled, then it just becomes a negative experience. Well, no, you no, you don't do it though. though. That's it. You put stuff out. They accept it or they don't. You don't keep the pressure on. Yeah, you don't invest emotion in it. No, no, you just you, you just do. react yeah. uh, it, honestly in the moment. That's mm. all you have to do. Mm. And that's easy. <laughs> Finding what I'm doing currently is looking at stuff that interests me and trying to sell those people on going to this historically interesting but current contemporarily. Well, is there a theme established for this year or what? Well, it's being held. In or is that up to you guys to do that? It's being held nominally by a group at Cornell, but they're doing it in New York City because New York City is infinitely more interesting than, than Cornell. Uh, as an area, um, and they, their speciality has historically been uh, robotics and embodiment. Well, are they involved in this uh, planning committee? No, they're not. Funnily enough, actually, what are the they? They're just. What are they doing? What? Well, they're, they're hosting it nominally, even though it's in New York. What does the, that mean? Though? That, that means that the fellow who's they're the paying chair, for. No, no, we're paying for it. I mean, you pay five hundred dollars to attend this thing. Um, the fellow who's the chair comes from Cornell, and my view is potentially, although this is for the program committee to decide, the decks may be slightly stacked towards more of the stuff that Cornell Something is that, doing. Yeah, but they don't have a person. Doesn't someone from Cornell have a person so on this fellow, planning committee? No, no, well, they may, and this is what. It's well, I mean, that would make sense. He's, well, uh, yeah. they do in the the ultimate hierarchy, but the program committee is a very different organ. And the fellow who's the head of the program committee is one of the few fellows who I contacted, who kept in contact with me from going to A-Life. And he's someone who is very um, sympathetic with my broader kinds of goals. Hence he invited me on to do what I do. Yeah, that's great. So, yeah. I like. I really, honestly, I can't complain about it. It's, it's going to be very interesting, actually, how I fit this yeah, into work. Yeah. Because yeah. I'm going to have to. I'm going. To, I'm not going to. It's not going to take time out of my work a day. But I am going to have to go there, and ideally, my work would pay for it. They paid for it a year ago. Yeah. Maybe well, not you, this time, so but you I'm need to, to prepare to, them starting exactly. now. <laughs> no, no, no. No, my view is actually because it's a year away. I need to actually prepare them. In a kind of January time frame, I can raise it subtly. Yeah, well, whatever it but is. The notion yeah, that yeah. I'm going to be away for a well, for a week in July yeah. can be floated 
driven yeah. by the stage. Yeah. Um, that's, that's, I think you should be able to engineer that situation. I'm relatively confident. Yeah, I've also yeah. gotten another fellow in another team who I think would be a relatively good speaker um, interested in it as well. And, you know, I'll continue to coax him with the view that if a couple of us are going from Netflix. And my view is also I know people at Google that it'd be quite easy to bring over and maybe even a couple of folks at Apple and really, you know, make it quite interesting associated with the industry folk involved. Potentially also GlaxoSmithKline and the interesting kind of pharma company angle as well. I mean, I think there are a number of folks. The main thing is just selling them that this conference is going to be distinctly different. I mean, this is a conference that has failed in recent years sufficiently that there have been bad reviews and like. What make, are, do they have any reason to think that enough people are going to pay them $500 to make it worth doing another one? Well, this is the interesting part. The one in Michigan was so poorly attended they gave a vast discount to Michigan students which basically produced 70 plus, maybe nearly 80 of the 200 attendees were Michigan students Um, and they really were um, an interesting influence on the whole tone of the conference. My view is that this has to change and this is what I said explicitly. I was pulled into a board meeting at the conference and partially because I was jet-lagged, but also partially because I'm relatively honest when people ask me these kind of questions, told them that they'd basically wasted this conference on because they hadn't gotten any, um, you know, uh, commercial interest. And also they'd created this very bizarre conference structure. Funnily enough, the fellow who had done this was the academic who I met afterwards who had various curious things to say about me in no blame. But aside from that, the, 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 basically, the conference was digressive and had failed to engage any of the minds that I thought should be there. Um, and I think basically from that statement, I was put on the program committee to rectify this, perhaps. Yeah. Um, interesting times associated with this. And I will give period. And what is this organization? It's called uh, it's called ALIFE.org. It's the artificial the International Society of Artificial Life, and they host the Artificial Life Conference every other year. And how many they, – they obviously have people who are paying members, right? Uh, so this is an interesting question. It varies from about 80 to 200. My view is it's probably close to 80. Their publication, <laughs> yeah. their publication is – And how much does it cost to be a member? Um, well, if you pay for the conference, then you get membership as part of that. If you don't pay for the conference, I think it's about $80. $80 a year yeah. to be a member and – Somewhere between eighty and two, even even given a high one, two hundred, if it, you know, whatever. They have I mean, on a planet of seven billion. <laughs> you know, this, this organization has lost its way. I mean, I'm, I'm. I, this well, it depends is, on who those two hundred are. Well, no, but the, I, I mean, know, that would make I know who I know who at least the eighty are. Um, in fact, I have actually. I was at one time provided a full list of the paid up membership, and I'm looking through them. I was left scratching my head, and sometimes. Um, but aside from that, um, this is an organization that's fundamentally lost its way, and I think a lot of the. Do you think it's too late? I'm thinking maybe it's too late. I don't think... My view is, particularly looking at the kind of history of artificial life, um, it's never too late. Well, you've got to get young people. You've got to get college students. So this is what I'm doing, Heron. There's a fellow called um, Tom, someone, who is actually interviewing me. He won't be interviewing me this weekend because of the um, quilting, but he'll probably interview me next weekend, and I'll put that audio out. I may even put it out on the Stonehenge feed as well. Um, Because... I think there's actually a new generation of folk who could quite easily do what I did with Biota. In fact, I'm actively 
probably looking for someone to take over yeah. the responsibility with Biota because I'm actually really thoroughly engaged in Noble Ape currently and I feel kind of a bit sad, although all the previous participants in Biota have gone in different directions and really you can very only few do of them. so much exactly. as an individual. Exactly. So you got to put yeah. your energies where they pay exactly. off. Well, yeah. And so, yeah, that's going to be an interesting process because I think there is, and he works through Reddit almost exclusively to gather together like-minded simulation interested folk that are starting to develop new simulations as well. So, yes. I don't know about Reddit. Uh, do you use Reddit? No, well, I've started, I mean, Reddit for me is just a demographic that I'm out of. It's a bit like Pinterest. I mean, Pinterest, the demographic is middle-aged women. I've joined Pinterest recently. <laughs> and funnily enough, my name was taken. It's one of the few experiences where I've joined some woman called Barbara, what have you, ballet slippers, had taken Barbalay, um, because of her interest in ballet slippers and and her name was Barbara. So I went to sign up and it's like, Barbalay is taken. I'm like, what? Some, some, they, I looked up this Barbalay on Pinterest and yeah, it's some middle-aged woman. Um, so you've got Pinterest on one end and then you've got Reddit on the other. And Reddit, the interface... Well, I don't even just, know what Reddit does. Reddit is basically a collection of link sites and it does these things of... Um, they have these I am posts where... They have a variety of people posting who they are, and then people can ask them questions periodically. I mean, there are a series of interfaces which are... Like, I am an arrogant asshole. Yeah, you post that, and you'd get virtually no questions. If you said, I am a former hitman, you know, I am <laughs> an Iraq veteran, I think, actually, you could actually get quite... You, you're angry... 20-something male is very heavily on Reddit here, and I think you're missing, really? actually, a demographic no, I'm, that you've I'm exploited quite... previously. You're right. So you uh, should be all over Reddit. Well, tell me about Reddit. Tell me. I mean, it's... I it's, don't even know... I mean, I've heard of it, and... It's a rough interface, um, in terms of the way the information is presented, and a lot of it is associated with just kind of is aggregating text -based? links. text-based? Yeah, it's almost I mean, exclusively text-based. Okay, so it's like a bulletin board, basically. Basically, and yeah. It's, it's like old school. shit and people respond to it's it. It's like old-school HTML, basically. And um, so I really... I have little interest in these kind of things, because I pretty heavily is Facebook and Reddit has always seemed to be, be a bit kind of curious and because I followed the history of Dig and all these other link sites um, stumbled upon and these kind of things yeah. delicious I mean there have been a series of link sites on Reddit's what it's distilled down to it's a distinctly younger demographic early 20s just either going through university and what are they and, and they university. use it for what links and interests it's basically I mean, like so they're an old bored they're sitting around board. with nothing to do exactly. and they're stoned yeah. and they go to Reddit Exactly. And they find something interesting. Yeah, I like simulation. I don't know. I mean, I've not explored it associated with, you know, adult topics, pornography, etc. There might be a component <laughs> to that. I don't know. Um, but, you know, there are all these. There are a series of interests on there. I've not looked at it with regards to Model Rail, but I have discovered some YouTube channels that have mm. been specifically. I think that is a really from, important demographic. I think there are a lot of angry, disaffected young people yeah. who. who would snap if given the right provocation would get that they could fo focus their energies on changing it instead yeah, of just well, being I mean, pissed about it. I think you should explore Reddit because it seems to be very similar to the kinds of folks that you've cultivated previously. And it would also um, almost force you into maybe revamping or relooking at what exists on gendo.net currently. Oh, I would redo that. Listen, that site is not going to change. That's what I created. I don't know. You know, I didn't. I wrote it in a word processor. 
it hasn't changed since then, except I've updated the bibliography. That, that site's not going to change unless somebody else comes to me and says, listen, let's work together and create a site that makes some sense. You know what you should create is you should create gendo2020.net or something like that, which is the maybe a wiki or something like that for, you know, for, um, I, I mean, I, anyway. Well, we can talk about uh, – listen, I, I fully intend to exploit Gendo.net. Gendo is the center, I think, you know, I mean, linguistically, is the center of what I'm doing. That's yeah. the meme. Yeah. And, um, and just exactly how that's going to work, I don't know. But the website, like I say, was done 10, 15, what, 10 years ago? When yeah. did HTML start? I, I, I've got ago. a book on, uh, on HTML and found about 10 tags that I could use. Yeah. <laughs> and and I created that. Yeah, whatever. Yeah. Anyway, that was when I built that website. And I quickly got to the point where I gave up because every time I made a little change, I had to go change things in 20 other places. And I realized that I just, I just was, you know, was not up to that. Yeah. And I knew that there would be software coming that would help. And there is, but now I don't want to learn that software. Mm. You know, there are people who know how to do this shit. I just need to find somebody out there to uh, work with me to create the Gendo site that will change the face of the planet. Yeah, so I can forward on. Um, I mean, the Reddit stuff is relatively easy to get stuck into. I'll check it out. Yeah. And yeah. I think the I am part was not something I knew about, but this Tom guy said you should post an I am, and I went to the I am thing, and I thought. Yeah, I could post an eye. The main thing is that anything... I mean, so, for example, I started FreshSim.org, which was the forum for artificial life folk. Um, and anything that requires me to go back on a regular basis and post and all this kind of stuff, basically, I'm less receptive to than something like Facebook, where I get that. You can go there and do what you want exactly. and when you want to. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, that well, that is. I like Facebook. In, the, in fact, yeah. I was I was that was something I wanted to ask you about. Is Facebook is crucial to me? Uh, what hap- What would happen if Facebook went out of business tomorrow? I mean, is this stuff? Will is this is my my Facebook page on the web archive so no, that it'll be there not. forever? Probably not. Is there a way I can put it there? Uh, it's going to be relatively difficult, particularly going back in time. I mean, it's something I worry about too. Because I love my Facebook page. I've posted some amazing things there over the last year. And uh, I I see this really as a resource that people could use. It's just full of interesting stuff. There is a potential for it to go, um, and I think this will, I mean, this has already happened to a variety of people in Google Video, for example. I mean, there there is the potential that Facebook could go out of business or lose or there would be a wide variety i mean it's been hacked recently associated with exposing yeah, the, emails. anything the, could happen yeah. man <laughs> you know the things that i've found actually are when i've been relatively close i mean this was the thing with the christian for my former christian friend is that when people have either dropped off facebook or blocked me or done a variety of like aggressive acts uh or unfriended me or these kind of things and when there have been people that i've followed Pretty periodically, that's a similar thing. I had a friend who I grew up close to um, in Canberra, Australia, and she and I were, you know, relatively good friends. We'd, you know, pass each other, you know, walking into school and we'd talk on occasion. And she was someone who friended me early on on Facebook. And she had a young family and they would do things in and around Canberra and I'd see their photo updates of them, you know, doing a variety of things that I did in my 
you know, youth. And it was actually really quite reassuring to see her and her, you know, young family basically living in this environment. It's almost like a simulation fundamentally, but in a kind of visual form. <laughs> and she went through and basically removed everyone except for her immediate family. And I contacted her and I said, oh, look, I'm sorry if I've offended you in some way. And she said, no, look, I'm just simplifying my Facebook interface. And I said, well, that's fine. You know, when I'm next back in Canberra, I'll, um, you know, get in contact and, you know, come to one of these meals that people organize when I go back to Canberra. Um, so, I mean, I have had those experiences and I do genuinely, most of what I do through Facebook is fundamentally not necessarily voyeurism, but it's just interesting. I have a series of friends that holiday in really interesting areas and actually seeing their holiday updates are something that yeah. I really look forward to in anticipatorily. Yeah. Yeah. You know, they'll say, oh, I'm yeah, going to Facebook, Jamaica that's or what the beauty of and, Facebook. Yeah. I, I don't get people who don't like Facebook, man. It's, it's whatever you want it to be. Yeah. It, it's just, it's got so much potential. Who knows what other people use it for, but man, I love it. I found very, I mean, I've been relatively successful. Oh, here's an idea that I've had in the past couple of weeks that I actually wanted to float as I did with the um, the Black Panther thing that I got, uh, you know, a number of old and new Black Panthers to, to join. Um, there's a phenomenon associated with conflict that occurs currently, that the president is the primary person who creates these conflicts. He authorises drone strikes, he authorises invasions, he authorises uh, a wide variety of things that are independent of the general population. And my view is that these events actually cause us direct danger. That when drone strikes hit civilian populations, the children and the grandchildren and the great-grandchildren of those civilians have the potential, and in many cases I feel relatively justifiably so, for hating us. to do yes. some really serious damage. Damn I'm right. sick and tired of this whole notion that the executive has this justification to represent what the US or what Australia or the UK is in these aggressive and stupid acts that do very little to actually secure <laughs> us. So here's my thought. Every act of violence, and this is, this is regressive, this is something that um, once this legislation comes to pass, all the countries that are currently in conflict, be it Yemen, Pakistan, uh, Iraq, uh, Afghanistan, potentially North Korea, potentially Syria, uh, Egypt, or Libya, all these countries that have um, US military involvement, that have it either explicitly or covertly, would require a popular referendum. Every time there was a potential for any kind of drone strike, military attack, any act of aggression which could potentially kill people in this country, in this, these countries, would require a popular referendum. And the purpose of the popular referendum is for the politicians to convince the public that it is in their best interests to, um, you know, invade uh, Syria or Afghanistan, or which requires a conversation which is never had associated with these kind of conflicts. It might have been had a long time ago. It might have been had associated with Afghanistan briefly, but the rhetoric was so ridiculous. And only in the case where a majority in the referendum voted for the violence in this country, identifying that the population was truly behind whatever acts of violence were going to occur, would the president or who the Congress or whatever be allowed actually to enact Well, violence. yeah, it used to be. I always thought it was Congress who declared war. Not anymore. <laughs> No, apparently, apparently that yeah see i think all the this legal talk like is just bullshit it's a waste of time the, the united states needs to go well the interesting thing associated you know, with these nation of, states yeah. 
it, it's over. Yeah. I think that's part of the conversation. But my view is that these kind of ideas, the notion of a referendum before violence, the notion that the but public do you, has a, How far do you think you're going to get with that? I think I can create a Facebook page and virally get people to... You think you... Well, ah, now that's an interesting idea. Yes. Yeah, yeah, you're right. That's Oh, that's a very interesting idea. But that. But then the question is, how committed are you to making this happen or just hoping this it is interesting. happens? This is interesting. So <laughs> my view is that there are a series of topics like this that can fundamentally change a conversation. And yeah. it is an interesting phenomenon. And this is something that I've actually... Yeah, changing the conversation. About. You're right. That's precisely what I'm about. Exactly. Is that people need to start talking about things that they haven't been talking about. Yes. So I think this is an idea... That, uh, the main thing is I just want a distinct graphic. And I think it's a, a tick and a bomb or something like that. There needs to be something that conveys the notion of a referendum and violence um and i think it's an international phenomenon i don't just want this enacted in no the of US. course it, it, yeah, yeah no this is a global this is not about nation states exactly. it's about the people of earth waking the fuck up well it's about the people of earth being re-empowered because everything up until this point has just disempowered well they've never really been empowered exactly it's about the beginning of again it's an it's really a new era of earth's uh, his, history and the, the phenomena it's, associated with how easy it is actually to conduct a national referendum, particularly associated with computation and all these kind of things. I oh, mean, yeah. The notion of, of the simplification and democratization of the voting process is yeah, something that yeah. is really quite interesting. We've got the technology exactly. now to create a, a, a way for human beings on a global scale to make decisions about things. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's that's yeah. I agree. That's so anyway, that's that's the seed of my idea that I wanted to float here first, with the view that I have access to a an artist and various other things that I need in order to start these kind of ideas. And I'm well, you know, I've been considering yeah. doing. A, a, I mean, not a. I don't think of it as a comic, but the idea of a of some sort of graphic element with, about Gendo. Mm strikes me i mean the more you i've been listening to you talk about this stuff i'm thinking <laughs> there are many many different audiences out there and uh and different media will reach different groups um, hmm. so Heron, that brings to a conclusion my topics for this evening um do you have anything you want to float nope very good I was, I, on my list of topics, which I decided not to raise with you this evening, was the whole legacy of the discussion of Kim Obama and the children, which we kind of did to death, both via recording and post-recording. Um, is that a topic worthy of discussing this evening, or are you comfortable that this is just a point of mutual disagreement? Um, no, I think that it's full of interesting sidelights, but I was willing to let it go. <laughs> <laughs> I'm willing to let it go as well, Aaron. So, if, if we can conclude on that point, I look forward to talking to you next week. Yeah, I do think... Well, okay. Or do you want to float it? I mean, if you do want to float it... Well, um, well I, I think there must have been some basic misunderstanding as to what I was saying. I, I, that's all I can think. We'll continue. Is that your responses and the things you gave me seem to be talking about the fact that politicians use kids uh, for whatever purposes they may have and that they stage these, these situations. No, I was referring to 
And, uh, uh, well, clearly, the emotional response of children is fundamentally cultural. And my view... Wait, wait a minute, it's fundamental... Yes, it's, yeah, it's a big part, but that doesn't discount anything else, too. My view is that the, what is perceived to be acceptable is the, is, the, is the distinction between a group of children tr- crying in North Korea and a group of children, w- and the term I would use is aping in the U.S. because the, yeah. the facial well, expressions yeah. on the children. No, no, yeah, they were there be... for themselves. That's what I mean. The, the, the kids there were, were not there because they were in awe of Obama. They were there because they thought they were cool being there, and they were mugging for the camera. No. I, I, think that, I think that's probably the nature of our disagreement. Really? You don't – ah, you think the kids in Obama's presence were experiencing some deep, meaningful emotion that, that's related to some personal reality of this guy named Obama? I think they would tell their grandchildren associated with that experience. Oh, they may very well. And, yeah. and more importantly – if there had been a child there, which could have also happened in the Korean, North Korean circumstance, who had asked President Obama about drones, about why African Americans <laughs> are financially yeah, yeah. worse off under him than the white guy that seems to like them drowning in Louisiana, and a wide variety of other questions, that child would have been promptly ejected. Similarly, <laughs> yes, of course, yeah, that's so, that's a given. It's just I yeah. think the responses in a cultural context were identical. Yeah. Okay, yeah. See, that's what I find bizarre, actually, to call that identical. From what domain that those two react? To me, the only the, the only thing even close to what those North Korean kids show are like when. Uh, girls at the airport when the Beatles arrived from England for the first time. Or at the Beatles concerts. Isn't that uh, what the... Again, I see the reaction of the children with Obama exactly the same way. Well, no, I, I do too. Oh, you do? Oh, yes. Yeah, well, see, that's, what I, that's where I think this is interesting because how, on what level you can equate those is just absolutely beyond me. I don't think <laughs> a know? child would... Wait, well, exactly. But, but the children's reaction is that they are confronted by... As you say, a divine superstar. The marketing of Obama yeah, in but Obama demographics is phenomenal, and to the point where seemingly rational adults will talk about Obama in a way which oh, some, is completely yeah, yeah, but, removed. Yeah, yeah. But the, those people are idiots. They're fringe people. <laughs> Okay, they seem in America, mainstream. They vote for him. Yeah, I know. Well, no, just because someone votes for somebody doesn't mean they're that stupid. As I'm, you I'm, I'm, I'm. No, look. To, let's be frank here. I am phenomenally disgusted by the current president in this country. He makes me physically ill to think about him. <laughs> he kills people at an instant. He is oh, completely superficial. Yeah, but we've he, all knew all this. Exactly. I mean, this is nothing new. He's, he's I, probably less bad than previous ones. Who knows? Well, I don't know. I mean, there are a number of people that disagree with that that come well, from maybe, some political Well, maybe. But again, what the me. hell would you expect? Why could you... Why do you who, well, go, go ahead. I mean, but that's is, just what you expect. Except... Except, still, some percentage of the population, a slight majority above the, a slightly larger group than the other guy in the last election, they voted, voted for him. 
they voted for him as the least of two evils, generally speaking. You they didn't. They didn't the cry in his. You know. Well, like I say, I. I if I, I just don't know what to say to you at lunch today, what I actually say- I find interesting is that the the something about the and again with the Thai, this has to do with the Thai people and their relationship to the king, is that somehow that culture is able to instill the the uh, that kind of reverence at their. The thing is, American kids were that way about the Beatles. It was against what their parents wanted. The parents hated that shit. The thing is, it, it happens randomly in our culture. Somehow in that culture, they seem to have figured out a way to uh, control that. It's and called to the aim gulags, it. isn't it? I, mean, my well, I don't know, the, I don't know what it's called. I'm just... I can make between the two photos is that the children who may have been angry or upset about opposing with Obama, their parents probably didn't end up in slave labor camps. I mean, I think there are clearly Again, I'm not even talking about theory. I'm just talking about looking at the faces of those kids. Those, they are in different universes. No, this is a cultural perception thing, Heron, because when I look at the faces of the kids in the Obama photo, many of their reactions to me, culturally, coming from outside the US, particularly associated with the legacy descriptions of smiling and body language in large part coming from, you know, primate psychology, which I was told from early childhood in Australia as a fundamental kind of cultural distinction between us and Americans, indicates that this is a representation of exactly the same emotional state, just represented through the cultural, you know, facade of America. Okay, uh, there's nothing more I can say about that. You know, that's your interpretation. What I find it more interesting, particularly in terms of the posts on Facebook, was that the only two advocates for a position other than mine were two Americans. As if saying that the leader... Well, my sense is, see, my sense is we're still not talking about the same thing. This is no, we are. This is no, the- no, you think we are. I think we're not. So who's right? Because, no, you are distinguishing, <laughs> you're distinguishing this notion of a cultural gel as being something that's a fundamental difference. I actually uh, think No, I is- never said anything like that. Well, what's the no distinction idea. here? What's the distinction? I- I'm not quite sure. I'm still trying to articulate it clearly because obviously I haven't clearly enough because we haven't agreed on any of this stuff. I'm still trying to figure it out. There's something I think very interesting there and it ties in with again my experience with these Thai kids that somehow their culture has has programmed them in a very specific way that they intended to. I I don't want to make this point too graphically Heron but have you spent any period of time in recent years with African-American children, particularly maybe no. children in Harlem or the areas no. that don't no, have this photograph with children. No. And have you talked to African-Americans, uh, particularly in these areas associated with... No, the I have not. No, of course. Well, I should say, anyway, no, I have not. So You're what's particularly her. interesting here is that I, I am exposed to, through my work, Obama supporters, people that will fly on their own dime to states and rally for Obama, and I have interactions with these people on a periodic basis. I had one at okay. lunch today. And, of course, those people are one in a thousand. They're not indicative of the average human being in America. These are fanatics. 
they're the, well, the heart well, of the party. <laughs> but, so the children that would be photographed with Obama would typically come from the group that you describe as fanatics. Um, could be. Could be. Well, listen. Like I say, I, I'm really going on what I see on their faces. And, and again, you see something very different in the faces than I do. And I'm not sure that talking about it is really going to explicate it any. Oh, I think it will. I mean, that may be what we disagree about here, but I think it's actually really fascinating that, um, and it's true, you know, one of my supporters is my wife, and I've been able to spend a number of years with her, talking to her, particularly because she is an American. Well, you know, listen, I'd have to, it, this is really so abstract anyway, without my ability to actually talk to those kids in those photos in both places, <laughs> this is just nonsense. Be- because... Everything you and I are saying is just shit we've read. No, it's shit somebody. I've experienced. I mean, I, I have experienced. Well, yeah, no, well I, 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 run, I deal with humans too. But I mean, I know you can't. Well, go ahead. So I, uh, through this Black Panther group that I've set up, one of the chief instigators who seems to be really intelligent, who I actually want to have a Stone Ape discussion with at some stage if these things exist, is is a... An Obama supporter. He's African American. He was part mm-hmm. of the early Black Panther movement. I can't understand coherently how you get from the Black Panthers to Obama. I'm very interested in hearing that expansion. But I do have periodic. But haven't you already made up your mind? No, not at all. Okay, it sounds like you have. No, no, no. I'm fascinated. I'm fascinated to join the dots. I mean, I haven't made up my mind associated with this person's experience, and I'm perfectly open to the fact that he may identify some really interesting parts that I haven't actually understood in order to make yeah. this thing more coherent. Well, see, actually, what I find interesting is your abhorrence of, uh, of Obama, that he makes you physically sick. Yeah. I, you know, I, that's what I don't understand, is why you feel so strongly about him and, or that or whatever. I mean, it's of it no consequence to me. It wasn't necessarily the. It's it's the so internationally Obama. When I go to Australia, for example, Obama has a particular perception, particularly amongst my mother and her friends, <laughs> that I find really very curious. And I think there's a good amount of scholarship, particularly coming through, you know, Malcolm X and other you know African American thinkers of the time. That if you judge someone purely by the color of their skin, then you make a series of these really quite curious judgment calls, which are something that's real. I, I, I saw certainly the hope in Obama, um, but I also saw fundamentally the reality. And I'm really quite concerned by people who buy into hope when no hope is presented. Um, and I think yes, that's... it's called the caterpillar. <laughs> it's what would you expect? So this I, is exactly what's happening. The system doesn't work. It's continuing not to work. And eventually people will begin to wake up to that. It's systemic. It's not Obama I know. or Bush. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not arguing about that. Yeah. I, I think my view, however, is that um, you would hope that there would be emerging, particularly as you describe in the next 20 to 50 years, more of the butterfly that you would start seeing, in this kind of time frame, ideally, mm. some butterfly yeah. people. 
I've been, there are some, and you're right, I agree, but this is where the patience comes in. I've been doing this for a long time and been frustrated for a long time. Yeah. That's why I can say I, I, we are early in the process here. It's going to take, like I say, 30 to 50 years for this to become significant. And, uh, well, I think it'll become significant far before then, but I mean, to be triumphant, let us say. Mm. Uh, this is really early right now. This is not, and we've had this discussion previously, this is not a narrative that I'm going to be continuing. I mean, I think your generation has had this narrative. My parents have this narrative too. And it's not a narrative. The narrative, which narrative is this? I mean, the, 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 the caterpillar. Oh, cat, the, the metamorphosis yes. thing. Okay. And that there All is right. hope in the future because this thing will happen. No, it's about us doing now what needs to be done. In part, but in, in saying... It's just a model. That's all metamorphosis is. It's a way to think about it. It's not, we're not saying that, or at least I'm not saying that's the way it is. It's just a metaphor. It's a way to think about what's going on all around me. There are other maps for the same territory that may be equally valid that are quite different. I have no quarrel. I don't want to eliminate them. I want to use them too. But you return to the caterpillar butterfly. It's the best one I've found. You show me a better one. And again, I don't need to dump this if I find another one that's equally valuable in other circumstances. Or even in some of the circumstances where I use this metaphor, maybe this other one might work better. I don't really care. It's just I'm comfortable with that one. I've struggled with this for years. That one works for me. It's, but it's, that's all it is. It's just a story. Give me a better one. I mean, the notion of self-motivating here, I'm, I have no truck with you about. And the notion that ideally one would want <laughs> some hope, I have no truck here, with you Here about. I am. I find myself aware in the universe at some point. What am I going to do? Get married and have kids and have a family and, a, and buy a condo and uh, get a couple cars and maybe a home in, the, in the, a cabin in the mountains. You know, we live in the middle of this mystery, and most of us live in the, the civilized world. And that's fine. That's not, not a problem. It's just that that's not living in reality. That's living – that's one way of doing it. That's all. It's one way of thinking about it. I, I can think of a lot of, at least for me, more interesting ways to think about it. But it's just for me, and I, but I don't think it's just for me. Actually, I think a lot of people are coming to this. They're finding that all the stuff that they thought they were supposed to live for really just doesn't, isn't that important. Now, the, the problem, and that pisses people off, and if they don't find something better, then that could be a problem. You get a bunch of really pissed off people. Well, so, maybe that in and of itself could motivate something. I mean, I, I guess my, my perspective has always been considerably more nihilistic, and it's something that I cannot be this notion of hope, yeah. In and of itself, doesn't I think motivate? I don't think hope is no. I I never use the word hope. Fuck hope. It's having a vision of the future you want to create and working to bring that into reality. And what motivates you in these small periods? Oh, I don't have. It is not hope. Excuse me. What motivates you in the deltas, the small deltas, that is not hope in these circumstances? I don't even understand that question. So really, you wake seriously. up one day and you go to bed at the end of the day. And what is motivating you through that period of time, if not hope? Oh, overall, no, it's the metamorphosis uh, analogy. 
and that yeah. doesn't present hope to you? Oh, well, if you want to think about that as hope, go ahead and I just like I say that particular word just doesn't come in. The metaphor is a dominant metaphor in my understanding of who I am and what I'm doing here. I don't think it's the truth. I just think I haven't found a better, more empowering story that gets me up in the morning. Why that you, story gets me up. Well, that's exactly <laughs> my point. But I mean, yeah. I guess the need for the story is, I guess, the thing that I find curious. Oh, oh, oh I see. Well, it's not a, it depends on what level you want to play the game. If you're a dog, you don't need a story. Maybe you get they up have and, a story. How do you know that they don't have a story? Well, they they do they may very well have a story, but not a story in the in the same sense of the language space we create our stories in. Um, I think we humans are in fact unique on this planet. I mean, not not in well quantity, quality, whatever those lines, but um, yeah, we're, we're in a different space, different universe because of language. It, it changes everything. I have a Chinese colleague and an Indian colleague and they occasionally make the point that if you have enough to eat you have enough time to consider these things but if you don't have enough to eat yeah, and if you're right. working to eat yeah. then you have a very different space. A- absolutely, yeah. For people who are tra- struggling with survival philosophy is bullshit. They, w- they need food to- now and a place to sleep tonight. Yeah, that's a whole... Different thing, but that's not where you and I are. There are people like that on the planet. That needs to be ended, obviously. That's mm. not a good thing. We, we, everybody should have time to contemplate what the fuck we're doing here. And with that, I think we will conclude tonight's recording here. <laughs> <laughs> All you language monkeys out there. <laughs> yeah. I, I will lead a hopeless week, and Heron also will allegedly lead a hopeless week. But somehow- no, 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 it's not a hopeless week. It's a week lived in the analogy of metamorphosis. It's a way of thinking that actually uh, is liberating and empowering. It's not, it, who cares whether it's true? <laughs> it doesn't make any difference. Okay, I'm going to have to find a word better than hope. That will be my <laughs> yes, word uh, yeah, Well, metamorphosis, there you go. Yes. Okay, you're right. Metamorphosis doesn't intrinsically have a notion of hope. Unless it just you have describes a process. Unless you have an intelligent thing that is... That is well, you can, you can have that on your story if you want. So that's the thing about stories is you can make them up any way you want to. Amen. <laughs> Amen. It's just important to remember that you made it up. Most people d- don't know that. So, for the benefit of folks listening in, I'm going to take a series of photographs that I will post only to the Stonate podcast page of interesting books that I find but am willing to give away with the view that I have two weeks probably before I will actually give these books away. And if anyone is interested in the books, please get in contact with me and I will send them to you. How nice. What a great idea. Yeah. You know, I might as well get it to miscreants. You know, I, I to, just uh, saw an ad in the new. You know, I work at a newspaper, mm-hmm. and they were running an ad. And there's this bookstore that, uh, for the rest of this month, is selling books at a dollar a book. That's the way to do it. And I'm thinking, and, and I talked to the ad rep who sold the ad, and he says, "I, I thought, well, it's a used bookstore, right?" Mm-hmm. He said, "No, it's just a regular bookstore. You know, first run." Books, everything. Use they just book take too. up space. Yeah, they just need to get rid of it. They need but, to turn over the stock. Yeah, yeah, but it's not. It's not a, a a bin. It's the whole store. Everything in the store. 
Well, obviously, they just need to yeah. get rid of inventory. Yeah. It's an easy way to do it. Yeah, well, that'll do it. That, they must, that, I would think they're going to take a big hit on that, though. Well, you don't know. You don't know. I mean, just getting people into a bookstore initially would bring them back even when the books are no longer a dollar. I think that's the old paradigm. No, the only people who are going to get there (laughs) are going there because they can get a dollar a book. You you may not remember (laughs) the borders collapse, but I certainly remember the borders collapse because, um, yeah, you would see basically – I mean, I used to go to Borders because I had... Yeah, that was there. one of my hangouts for yeah. a while. <laughs> and uh, when Borders collapsed and they were offering... You have never seen such crowds of people. In fact, the really sad thing was that if they'd gotten those kind of crowds through the general time, they wouldn't have had the need to close. But anyway. Yeah, yeah. So this is an even better deal because, folks, you would get free books, not even dollar books, if any of them are... You're going to pay the postage? Yeah. Media mail's next to nothing. It's very cheap. Ah, cool. Because it's a book, it's legitimate. I and what are you going to – you said you're going to po- post, post photos up on the – Why don't you just put a list of the damn books in text? Because that books – are, books are not a one-dimensional thing, Heron. Books ah, are a three-dimensional okay. thing that have covers and okay. inspire right. people. I got gotcha. you. Know. I got gotcha. you. I got gotcha. you. Excuse me. It also forces people <laughs> that are listening to this that haven't yet joined Are the you going to put up page. photos of everything there? Or just the ones you think that people will be interested um, in? I don't know, Heron. I've not gotten to that point yet. But when I get there, I'll let you know. <laughs> Find out on the Facebook group, folks. <laughs> well, Heron, I'm going to wish you a good evening. Okay. Pleasure chatting as always. Look forward to chatting next week. Take care. Good night. See ya.